Uh, let me refill my water and I'll move us on to the next one. All right, I'm gonna get some too. Hey, and and you do make a good point about the. Oh, never mind. You left. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good-old-days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man who won the Universal Podcasting Federation title at our last show, only to have it immediately discontinued, Alec Bridgen. Thanks a lot, Dusty. (laughs) And our resident squirrel form animagus, John Mullins. (laughs) Uh, How's it going today, guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> no, pretty good. <laughs> so can you keep it up for the whole show? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> it would improve the, the, the show, I would think. <laughs> At least my, my portion of the, com- the commentary. <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of interesting. Things just kind of ended up timed this way. But it seems kind of appropriate that our first recording session of the new year has us looking at a new beginning. We've seen the end of Jim Crockett Promotions. And tonight, we'll be covering the first-ever World Championship Wrestling pay-per-view, Starcade 88, True Grit, two Ts. John, the naming has not improved after the purchase. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) You can't blame Turner for that, though, because they're pretty much stuck with that name from the posters and flyers they probably spent thousands of dollars on for the show. Yeah. Who puts two T's in true? <laughs> oh, God. For extra emphasis. Sis. We talked about this at the end of the last show, but 1988 was the final year for Jim Crockett Promotions. The company was founded in 1931 and purchased by the Turner Broadcasting System in November of 1988. It had nearly a 60-year run entertaining fans of professional wrestling, and was instrumental in the careers of Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, and many other wrestlers who would go on to be legends of the wrestling business. Unfortunately, 1988 was the year it couldn't keep going. Injuries, overexpansion, mishandling of the UWF angle, overspending, and luxury purchases. All of these things are thought to have contributed to its downfall in one degree or another. So, in the month before the year's biggest show, the company has changed hands and names. From the ashes of Jim Crockett Promotions rises the phoenix of World Championship Wrestling. And this is the first big show for the new company. Will we see big differences right away? Or will things feel pretty much the same since the sale happened so close to the date of the show? To find out, let's go to the ring. Starcade 88, True Grit, was held at the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia on December 26th, 1988, in front of 10,000 fans. Now, this is our first Starcade in December. As we mentioned last time, the WWF created the Survivor Series last year to directly oppose the November Starcade and did serious damage to Jim Crockett Promotions' first foray into pay-per-view. Last year's Starcade did only 16,500 pay-per-view buys. Ouch. 
this year, Starcade did 140,000 pay-per-view buys. Slight improvement. Yeah, it's about yeah. eight and a half times last year's amount. Now, that's still less than half the 1988 Survivor Series 350,000, but at least we're into six digits this time. Luger, I want you to shut this mouth, pal. Starcade! Woo! The Nature Bar and the Total Package! Ha <laughs> ha! Bam Bam Bigelow, when you step in the ring for a championship match, to where we go, guns out, from the very start, you're not gonna walk from that ring victorious. You should have made it a point to get both of them, Daddy. Don't just get one. Don't take one limb. Don't take one heart. Don't take one ear. And don't take one eye. If Sting has to carry me on his back down that aisle, if he has to drag me in a wagon, I'm breathing. You understand what I'm saying? You should have got it done. It's violence for the sake of violence. And now I will turn it around to my violence, my lightning bolt, my fire, my thunder. An eye for an eye. Final fight music there. <laughs> Stage select. <laughs> we get an opening video package this year. It goes over the Luger versus Flair, Dusty and Sting versus the Road Warriors, and Bam Bam versus Wyndham matches that we'll be seeing tonight. Uh, it was, I thought, pretty nicely produced and pretty cool to see. Yeah. It's kind of weird the order they put them in, but it's that's kind of picky. You want them to build up towards the world title match? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. I guess their logic was, we need to start with Flair, because he's like... But I could have seen starting with Dusty, but maybe they... I'm sure there's a lot of thought goes into what order goes where. Like, yeah. Maybe they thought Dusty was so angry and passionate that it had to go last. I mean, but Flair's is pretty determined as well. Yeah. I mean, I could also see the logic of just saying, we're going to start on the main point of the show. Sure. That's like, this is the biggest thing yeah it was just nice to finally see them doing something like that mm -hmm. and kind of giving a little bit of uh that build up for the show to get you charged up for it yeah you would hope there'd be improvement when you're bought by a tv production company yeah to do your show i mean that that was definitely one you know? yeah absolutely yeah. yeah yeah if they're on some sort of medication Whatever Rick's on, it's not nature-derived. <laughs> but he's the nature boy. Uh, maybe it Doesn't is. Doesn't that inherently make it nature-derived? Nature I suppose. <laughs> they built up a lot of goodwill with that video package, but that goodwill is almost immediately undone as the actual show opens with the ring announcer's audio feed briefly overlaid over Tony Schiavone welcoming us to the show. Great job, guys. Great job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, so every time you do a talk show, there's a guy or girl, whoever it is, they come out and they sort of prep the audience. You tell mm -hmm. jokes and you talk about what's happening. It's a really common thing with TV. And that's clearly what the announcer's doing. Yeah. But just for some reason, they decide to put his feet on at the beginning of the show 
for absolutely no reason. Yeah, this will be a consistent problem over the course of the night. Tony, in any case, welcomes us to the show and calls Starcade the Super Bowl of professional wrestling as we see lots of shots of the crowd. Tony is hosting the show along with hometown boy Magnum TA, but Jim Ross and Bob Cottle will be handling commentary. As we go down to JR and Cottle, there's a very strange sign in the crowd that I just have to point out for a moment. Uh, I'm going to apologize in advance <laughs> if this is actually something that means something horribly offensive that I'm not aware of. I did try to look it up, but I couldn't find anything about this, about uh, its use of as, as a term. The sign says, Luger and Sting are cow hips. Or it might be co-whips, or maybe cow whips, but they missed a W. I'm, I'm not really sure. What does that mean? Well, I mean, in the House of Resentment, there's a whip, uh, but I don't think no. that they're, that's what they mean. I sent you a picture that, that explains this. Yeah, I don't think that the weird book cover with like the smiling moon on it that says cow hips on it is is a uh, explain much of anything john i gotta be honest with you my best guess is maybe cow whip is another word for bull whip hmm. but oh they're bullies oh okay so i was gonna say even in that case i'm not really sure how it applies but i i guess that could be a weird oblique reference to that i would kind of get it if they were fighting the horsemen maybe but they're not so yeah, it's by no means the worst sign we'll see in a wrestling. Oh show. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty worse, but cow whip. But it definitely is one of the most confusing signs that I've seen on a wrestling show. I could not make head or tail of that one. And again, I'm really hoping it doesn't mean something filthy. That I've now that I've said it on air. <laughs> you know, maybe the guy who had that sign will listen to this and and explain it to us. Yeah, Next if show, you we'll were know. the one holding that sign up at Starcade '88. Get in touch with us and tell us what in the world you meant. JR and Caudle build up that all five championships are on the line, and Caudle notes that they've been waiting for more than a year for this night, highlighting the Starcade schedule change. We get a really, really odd angle with the camera filming JR and Caudle from around the corner of the ring under the bottom rope. It looks very strange. Maybe the camera just kind of shy. It's like, just, you know, yeah. nervous about meeting them the first time. Got tired, decided to lay the camera down on the ring and just walk yeah. away. <laughs> Cottle and JR try to continue their conversation as the Varsity Club's music starts playing over them, but it's hard to hear. Sound levels are a real problem on this show, as the ring announcer's mic starts out far too loud and seems to vary wildly in volume. So our first match is Kevin Sullivan and Dr. Death Steve Williams of the Varsity Club versus Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, the Fantastics, for the NWA United States Tag Team Championship. So, at the middle of the year, the United States Tag Team Champions, the Midnight Express, and clearly the only one we'll see in this show, are holding those titles, and then they win the World Tag Team titles. I'm still not sure why both exist simultaneously, but they do. They briefly hold them at the same time, but ultimately decide they only want the bigger title. So they relinquish the title in September, that leads to the December 7th Clash Show. So it's on the fourth Clash Show where the finals of the tournament to crown the new U.S. Tag Team Champions takes place. On that show, it comes down to the Fantastics against the Sheep Herders. Or it would have if the Sheep Herders hadn't signed with the WWF and become a fully different team, a much, much different team, and left the process. So now that they're gone, they decided, well... We'll give it to the guys who they beat to become 
finalists in this tournament, which is Eddie Gilbert and Ron Simmons. They lose that match, ultimately, to the Fantastics, so they are now the new U.S. Tag Team Champions. Mm. 19 days later, we have a title match. The Fantastics have nice, sparkly blue entrance gear. Interestingly, a small fraction of the men in the crowd clearly boo them and cheer for the Sooners. Yeah. Dr. Death fans, I guess. Kevin Sullivan is billed from Singapore, much like the great Kabuki. I wonder if they were roomies. I could see them in sort of a um, the, the dysfunctional roommates, you know, uh, one's really messy, one's really clean. I could see that. That'd be sick, sick of my watch. Yeah. You're stealing uh, JR's later reference on the show, by the way. <laughs> eh, he's got plenty. Fulton and Sullivan start us off and trade blows back and forth, with Fulton hitting a Thais press off the second rope. Fulton and Rogers trade off and keep Sullivan and Dr. Death on defense, as we get a shot of Jason Hervey from The Wonder Years in the audience tonight. There's a cool spot as Fulton tries and fails to monkey flip Dr. Death out of the corner, so Rogers comes in and teams up with him to complete the move. Fulton tries and fails again afterwards, which is a little bit weird. So did he have, like, no short-term memory? (laughs) Apparently so. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Death breaks the Fantastic's momentum with an awesome pumping military press and a massive clothesline. Fulton gets an awkward dropkick and teams up with Rogers for a better double dropkick, but the match evens out. Caudle wonders what magic Sullivan used to get nice guys like Mike Rotunda and Dr. Death to turn into such animals in the ring, and JR says he has very unique communication skills. Well, you know, those druids, they're really wacky like that. Yeah. I do love that it's nice guys like Dr. Death, mm-hmm. <laughs> too. Well, he kills uh, he kills mice. He used to be exterminator. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I just made that up, just to be quick. Yeah. <laughs> Just put for John, that's for John's sake. I mean, it sounds so plausible, though. <laughs> that's why it works. Dr. Death and Sullivan beat Rogers up and get close to a win, but he keeps fighting and gets a few pin attempts of his own, including a very cool spot where he slides between Dr. Death's legs and brings him down for a pin attempt. He gets to Fulton, but Fulton ends up in trouble himself as someone in the crowd yells, We want blood! They are not okay with the new PG rating for the show, I guess. No, apparently not. Sorry, guys. TV company. The match swings back and forth, but Sullivan puts his knees up on a Rogers dive and knocks the wind out of him. Dr. Death puts a headlock on, and the camera mostly misses Sullivan providing extra leverage by holding Dr. Death's leg. Rogers breaks free and dives over a charging Sullivan to tag Fulton. All four men fight, and Fulton gets corner punches on Dr. Death and a clothesline, then goes for a sleeper. Dr. Death slips free, so Fulton tries a thiz press but Dr. Death drops him on the ropes. Rogers, heading back to his corner, clearly sees Fulton down, but goes back anyway as Dr. Death pins Fulton for the three. Cold, Rogers. Cold. I really like the story they had going with it, because initially it feels like it's going to be the strong face in peril, the heel controlling it, which we've we've seen the great effect with the Andersons and the Rock and Roll Express and other times to varying degrees. But they tweak it slightly because they make it a little more back and forth. Mm-hmm. On the other aspect is they really make it seem like Dr. Death could almost beat them on his own. Oh, God, yeah. He looks awesome in this match. They build him up very strong in this one. So it's, yeah, it's, it's differently paved, which is kind of nice. Because uh, on the very first Clash show, there's a match with the Fantastics where they do a variation of that regular style where they just get beat up continuously for like 15 minutes. And like, like really exaggerate. It was nice to 
to not see that again. Yeah. But yeah, my only issue is the timing slightly off on the uh, Death Surprise. Clearly, hops a little bit, but they're not quite in position. So then Doctor is ready a second later, and he does it again. And it wouldn't be a big deal if they didn't replay everything, because you replay it, you see it again. Yeah. But overall, it's a really good match. I enjoyed it. Although I didn't think that the uh, drop kicks were flubbed, I thought they did a decent job. I was like seeing that the first match rather than, you know, uh, only watching headliners do anything off the ropes or, or running, running yeah. at each other like that. Um, I would like bear hugs to go away, though. <laughs> it just seems like such a stall, especially if it like in the near the beginning of the match, you know. Yeah. Why? At least he, at least he keeps it relatively short on this one. But yeah. I, I thought the Fantastics were pretty good. And uh, like uh, Dr. Death um, pretty much lives up to his name. Uh, yes. <laughs> case, occasionally just is like, ah, forget it. I'm just going to keep on going. <laughs> but I enjoyed the match. And uh, uh, what was the name of the press that you said? Uh, Fez? Yes. Yeah. It's uh, named off after Luthez. Luthez, yes. Who's okay. a uh, former world champion of the NWA. And that was a move he would frequently use. Yeah, he that became his, his big move. Because you hop in the guy and you pin him. Steve Austin would later do that, but he would do that same setup and then just punch you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Austin was all about the violence. <laughs> and they do mention Luthez being there as well. I just remember the stunner or the, the you know, basically just headbutting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought this was a really, really good opening match. It really uh, set the tone for the show nicely and got everyone excited. A lot of very fast action, very few slow spots to it. Um, there's some really cool moves in the match, many of them by Tommy Rogers. Yeah. Uh, he was pretty exceptional during this. I loved the sliding pin. I loved the diving tag. was just amazing to see. Perfect timing. And he had some really good strikes. Not to be outdone, Dr. Death looked incredibly powerful and just scary with some of those uh, big power moves and clotheslines. Makes us really wonder what would have happened in the last show. Yeah, exactly. It's so cool to see an actual, like, full Dr. Death performance, and he's really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not that Fulton or Sullivan were slouches by any means, of course. Everybody worked really hard, and, well, there were some awkward moments, I agree, on that last ending spot especially. The teams worked well together, and moves had a really real feeling of impact. I appreciated, like you were saying, how the real back-and-forth feel of the match, it felt different than a normal tag match. Right. There was kind of a face-in-peril section, but it wasn't as pronounced or obvious. Right, right. And Rogers got a lot of offense still when he was in trouble. There really didn't ever feel like a point where one side was just totally in control and the other side was just trying to survive. The match also, I appreciate, didn't linger very long on any one concept. They kind of kept changing things up and and, uh, and modifying how the match was working. Sure. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. It was definitely in contention for my match of the night. No, it's, I mean, I will say it's definitely, looking back through the previous shows, it's definitely an improvement on previous opening matches, mostly mm-hmm. the first arcade. Yeah, there's definitely more of a, a feel of, of just, like, let's get everybody energized in this yes. one. Still several years away from cruiserweight being a thing, so yeah. what to make do until then. Yeah. Everything is a little bit faster paced, there's not much mulling around, and they're not doing the sizing each other up, you know, because they just get into it. Yeah. Everyone has their own established style and they're not afraid to allow each each person to have a couple highlights. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. They kind of just, like, charge right into the battle on this one. You don't like stopping them at every move to do a knee wiggle or something like that? (laughs) Uh, We will never forget the knee wiggle. (laughs) The title reign for Sullivan and Williams is not very long. The actual titles themselves, once they were on, they actually vacated for quite a while in May. Hmm. The reason they could not find clear evidence on. They're having matches, and then suddenly they just vacate the titles. They do reappear again for the end of the year, but it's like a weird stretch in the middle where they just abandon these titles and then bring them back. Like, it didn't really matter. Maybe somebody ran headlong into Dr. Death's crotch again. (laughs) (laughs) We go back to the announcers, and Tony and Magnum discuss the upcoming Midnight's versus Midnight's match, and both think that Cornette's team has the edge. They also take some time to build up the Russian Assassins versus Ivan Koloff and the Junkyard Dog, and they agree that it's likely that Junkyard Dog has a big chance of putting Paul Jones out of wrestling. On to the TV title match, and Tony thinks that nobody can beat Mike Rotunda in 20 minutes, but Magnum thinks that Rick Steiner's perhaps the best wrestler at Starcade, and he's got a real shot of taking the title. They go down to JR and Caudle, and Caudle disagrees with Tony and Magnum and thinks the original Midnight Express will come out ahead. So our next match is The Midnight Express, Beautiful Bobby Eaton and Sweet Stan Lane with Jim Cornette versus The Midnight Express, Loverboy Dennis Condry and Ravishing Randy Rose with Paul E. Dangerously. That's an awesome name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Randy Rose? No. (laughs) Although I do like, do we only have one R adjective that can be used? Right. He's ravishing Randy Rose. We had ravishing Rick Rude. Come up with something different. <laughs> I was hoping you would say Rick Rude when you said the first two. <laughs> you start making the sound. It, sadly, no. Rambunctious Randy Rose? That actually wouldn't be the worst thing. Resilient? Rockin'? Rockin' Randy Rose? Uh, I need another one. Rambunctious? Did you already say that? I think think you did. Yeah, I did. (laughs) John loses. No. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. Rectangular? I don't think he's particularly (laughs) rectangular. No, no. (laughs) I couldn't think of an R word. Risky. Repetitive Randy Rose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, Randy. Redundant Randy Rose. Oh. Now we're just getting mean to the guy. (laughs) It's also worth noting that he has a 3R thing going on. True. Dennis Condry only is he's Dennis Condry. He should be Kenneth Condry or, you know, Dennis Dondry or something. Oh, Devious. Right. <laughs> Devious Dennis would be a good name, actually. I'm looking yeah. to look to find out if triliteration's a word. <laughs> it's not. The Ben Express, the Eaton Lane version, that is. Uh, loser tag titles, and then shortly after that, Paul Dangerous comes back with faces from their past. Yeah, he brings the original team back, and they determine they got to get rid of the other one. There's a lot of great promos, because you have Cornette, and you've got Paul Heyman slash Paul Dangerously. But they don't really go in depth about why we need to only have one, and why it has to be the new, old ones versus the new ones. <laughs> they clearly want people to cheer them in Express. They are getting cheered in anyways, they might as well lean into it. So the best way to do it is to, is to represent, I guess, the bad version of them, and give them something, someone devious to go after. Because they're in this case, they're targeted. 
Whereas like the Road Warriors, they target them, or with the Rock and Roll Express, they target them. This time, they're just on the show, you know, just being guys and then attacked by the bad guys. <laughs> so sort of a story turn for them. But yeah, I kept waiting for like a bigger thing, but I couldn't find anything about it. Hmm. Both teams come out to the same music. It just plays straight through both entrances, which I thought was actually kind of a nice touch. Eaton and Lane have pretty cool-looking black jackets this year, while Condry and Rose wear black and pink vests. Big fans of Bret Hart, I guess. I don't get the wardrobe choices. <laughs> I like the black jackets. I thought that was pretty good. I'm talking later. Oh, okay. <laughs> they brawl quickly, and Eaton and Lane drive Condry and Rose away. Cornette challenges dangerously, and Caudle says that Cornette, in a shiny red suit, is dressed up like a Christmas tree. Cornette says he'll give America a Christmas present by kicking Dangerously's butt, but Condry and Rose hold Dangerously back. I also have to note here, I don't remember if we mentioned this last year or not, but Stan Lane totally looks like a smaller Lex Luger. He does, yes. Like, you could do a brother's gimmick with them, and I would totally buy it. I can see that. Yeah. It's the hair. There's got to be a singles match I can find between the two of them. There's got to be. There's... I will track one down for yeah. my viewing sake. Th- those two, like, on a tag team would be awesome, too. Yeah. It's like, which one's in the ring? <laughs> Just have to look at the size. <laughs> yeah. Actually, given the kind of weird stuff we have coming up uh, when they start mixing teams up randomly, that would be a perfect opportunity to do that. Yeah, Battle Although Bowl I, or something, yeah. But I don't think they do. Yeah, I don't think so. I hope I'm wrong. Eaton and Lane beat up Rose and Condry, as JR notes that Cornette looks like he made his pants out of Christmas gift wrap. <laughs> Lane drives Condry out of the ring with strikes, and Cornette nails Condry with the tennis racket, when the ref, Teddy Long, isn't looking, leading dangerously to protest and demand a DQ, even ringing the bell himself. It doesn't work. Lane keeps the advantage and hits an inverted atomic drop, as JR calls it the National Hold of the American Chiropractors Association. <laughs> Rose comes in, but Lane and Eaton keep solid control, and Cornette lands another racket shot, prompting more yelling and bell ringing from dangerously. JR says this is like smoking a cigarette in an ammunition dump. Something bad's going to happen at any time. <laughs> Eaton and Lane beat up Rose as JR momentarily mixes up Bobby Eaton and Bobby Fulton. Kind of understandable. Condry comes in, and the match kicks into a higher gear as Condry goes after Eaton with vicious punches. Eaton misses a jumping charge into the corner and gets tied up in the ropes. Condry takes advantage with some nasty knee strikes and the tide turns. Condry and Rose trade off smashing Eaton with heavy strikes and dangerously gets in a cheap shot, prompting Cornette to chase him around the ring and hurl a chair at him. JR notes that it's a little uncomfortable to work while chairs are whizzing by your head, which Caudill agrees. Eaton repeatedly fights for his corner, but Condry and Rose keep him away. Condry picks Eaton up, tags Rose, and slams Eaton down, launching Rose off the turnbuckle for what might be the winning splash, but Eaton dodges. Stumbling to his corner, he tags Lane. Lane lands kicks on Condry and Rose and hits a double noggin knocker, then gets more kicks to Rose and a big end scurry to take him down for a pin. Eaton stops Condry from breaking up the pin, and Eaton, Condry, and Long spill out of the ring. Dangerously nails Lane with his giant 80s cell phone and pulls Rose on top before Cornette chases him away. Long wakes up and counts one, two, then spots the cell phone. Rose denies any nefariousness as Long questions him, but Lane and Eaton hit the double goozle for the three. That is actually the move's name. <laughs> yes. Awesome. We unfortunately get a clear shot of Condry clearly just waiting for his moment to charge in, and lo and behold, he does, moments too late to stop the bin. 
Condry kicks Lane and uses Cornette's racket to beat up Lane, Eaton, and Cornette. Dangerously spits on Cornette, though it actually sounds a little bit more like he sneezed, honestly. <laughs> Eaton recovers and gets the racket and uses it to drive off the original Midnight Express. I, I liked it a lot. My only issue was the structure that I'm before, they sort of messing with the tax structure, was off but not quite in the same way in this one. Because there's a certain rhythm you get to these matches. And for some reason, it felt off to me. It felt like the faces being really strong and dominating the match felt longer than it normally is. Mm-hmm. Like you want to have, have a flurry and then something happens to take over, but they like, but it felt like they slightly extended that longer. But otherwise, I thought that was pretty good. It was it's the first time seeing Randy Rose. Yeah. Because he was off the Midnight Express before they even appeared at, I want to say, is it 85 they first appeared? I think so, yeah. Yeah. For in that tag match with, uh, Jimmy Valiant. He's on the show, but I'll have to mention him somehow. Bob, de- Bob demands it. <laughs> I can't, I'm perfectly fine just leaving him in, in the past. The rearview oh. mirror. <laughs> he can't exist in the ether. He's got to be with us at all times. Oh, no. But no, um, the Benet Express at one point was a three to four man group. It kind of varied when different territories. But then when they came to Crockett promotions, at that point it was Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton. And then I discussed in the previous show, Dennis Condry just sort of bails randomly and they replace with Stan Lane, which is generally seen as an improvement. They're the mm-hmm. well they're not obviously by no means the original Minute Express, they're like the third iteration of it at this point. They seem like the strongest one, the one people most remember in general. Mm-hmm. But it was a good match. It's just the funny timing of him clearly having time to run in there and stop the pinfall but choosing a no no, I want to hit him afterwards instead. Yeah. It's a little funny to me. Yeah, that last kick, there was some hesitation. It's like, yeah, maybe I should make it look like I'm going to stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should get up. I don't know if it was the camera angles or what, but there were some just funny shots throughout this whole thing. I, I enjoyed Cornette prancing about the whole the whole match. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know how, how taunting that was. I just thought I was just having a good time. You know, the racket still... Uh, Seems like a funny weapon to have, but hey, you know, whatever. My favorite, I, and again, I get their names because, you know, they're both Midnight Express. So which one looks like a dangerous lumberjack? Uh, uh, Condry, probably. The He's kind of the beefier looking one yes. on, the original, on the Originals team. There's a, there's a spot in the match that I like the most is uh, he's clearly talking to like the one of the other uh, one of his opponents off screen, but he just like slaps himself in the chest and he just like pulls on on the um, uh, ropes and everything just like taunting him. But it looks like he's just having a seizure or it's just, <laughs> just talking to nothing. I feel bad for Jim. <laughs> he always gets gets it handed to him. No matter yeah, what he happens. does. I mean, even when he's a good guy, he's still getting beat up in some way after the match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is still by far the best thing ending for these. Yeah, for him, I would yeah, say. Yeah, true. He didn't actually like shatter his knee in a million pieces this uh, time. So right. there's that. <laughs> but yeah, definitely change the wardrobe for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, this felt a bit slower than the first match starting out. I think you were like you were saying, Al. But once it got going, it did get really good. I thought it feels to me like a switch gets flipped midway through the match, and suddenly they really, really go at it. Particularly Condry and Eaton. Lane and Eaton are excellent together, and they both have some great moves. 
Uh, I loved Eaton's Neckbreaker and Elbow Drop, and Lane has some amazing, like, crisp martial arts kicks that make him stand out. Yeah, so they. Condry and Rose felt slower and more methodical, but not in a bad way. It felt like they had a more considered approach once they got in control, and Condry felt especially brutal when taking former partner Bobby Eaton apart. Kind of uh, Anderson-esque, but a little more strikes-focused. I can see that. The match had a clearer division of control than the first match. Uh, there's a stronger feeling of, like you were saying, the solid face control starting out and solid heel control later on, rather than the constant back and forth the first match had. Right. It does make the matches feel different, which is nice, but I like the first match's style a little better. Still, this was an energetic match that felt hard fought, and Cornette and Dangerously's antics were really great, too. They did just enough to add to the match, but not overpower it. Um, I liked the ending. It was neat to see the ref figure out what happened while his back was turned for once, and the double goozle, well oddly named, looked impactful. It is still, like you guys were saying, a little hurt by Condry, just kind of sitting there waiting for his moment. So, uh, yeah, come on, Dennis. <laughs> I will you know one thing, rarely in defense of the heels. So, as you noted, Dangerously hits it's the, the good guy with the phone and then helps the other guy get the pin. So when the ref comes in and starts protesting to Condry, he's simply saying, hey, I didn't use a cell phone at all, which is 100% <laughs> true. <laughs> Overall, really good match, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. The reason why they end with, while as a clear victor, there's still clearly a lot going on, is because they're going to the very next show, which is Chi-Town Rumble. The match they have booked for that show between the two Midnights is expanded. It is now a six-man tag team match, with basically the managers being involved. Oh, okay. And the losing team is forced to leave their promotion entirely. Oh. Let's see, you know, you guys can't work together, so when do you guys got to go? There's only one problem with that. Before this show, and this is February, mind you, Dennis Condry actually just leaves. <laughs> yeah. Decided to do it again. A couple weeks, it's, like, it's less than a month before the show. Hmm. He's just like, yeah, I know I'm going to lose a loser leaves WCW match, but I'm going to leave early because I'm, I'm, you know. It's like, I'll leave on my schedule. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> Undefeated. So what happens is they they sub out a wrestler who literally knows Jack Victory, who essentially is the generic wrestler they have who they can slap a mask on and call whatever they want. If you look at the history of Clash, he plays like seven different people as random mask wrestlers. <laughs> they go, here, put a mask on. You're the new uh, fifth or sixth member of the Midnight Express for this one match where you'll be, you'll wow. be pinned and lose. Well, I guess at least he gets to participate in one of the greatest uh, teams of all time. So Yeah. You know. Good for him. There is some back and forth with Mand with a bunch of wrestlers that we'll see going forward um, with the new you know, new bosses and new heads of that. As such, the New Man Express also leave, but it's a very brief tenure. They leave and they come back far before the next Starcade. So there's a loser leaves WWE match. One guy leaves beforehand on the team he's going to lose anyways. And they put that win also briefly leave, but they come back. <laughs> It's all kind of a mess. Yeah. We go back to the announce team, and JR builds up the level of effort that both teams gave, and that they haven't seen the last of this situation, as you've just made clear. Yes. Caudle discusses the upcoming Russian Assassins versus Ivan Koloff and Junkyard Dog match, and he predicts that the Russians will win. 
we go backstage to Magnum TA and the Varsity Club, as the Varsity Club are celebrating their big U.S. tag title win. I think I understand that Magnum T.A. is standing yep. by with the new United States champions. Let's go to him now in the locker room. Guys, are really celebrating here. You know, Doc, Steve, Dr. Williams, I got to say, you know, I don't like the company you're keeping, but I've got to say, honestly, I feel you made the difference. You made the difference in them winning this team, tag team championship. Well, boss, lose. man, we've never met eye to eye on anything we've done in the years. But let me say one thing. Mike, Kevin, the Varsity Club will always be at the top. Oklahoma, Syracuse, suspensions, probations, it don't matter. We will always stand ahead. You know, Magnum, you're an intellectual. You're right. We traded a moron. Michael and I traded a moron in on a genius. You see, we are the start of the franchise tonight. So far, we're one for one. I told you we win, and Michael is going to take that Rick Steiner and Alex, and we're going to run them out of the wrestling business. Right, Michael? Steiner might as well forget about it right now because I'm going to beat Steiner. you like the stupid dog that you are, Steiner. Just like a stupid dog. You know how you kick him? Kick him I'm going to do that to you and show the whole world who the better wrestler is, and that's me. Well, the varsity club surname lacking for confidence. Let's go back ringside for more action. A promo that only Michael Vick would love. <laughs> oh, girl. For me, this was short but effective once the sound starts up, at least. Good production values, this show. Oh, yeah. I thought Dr. Death did a much better job this year in this, like, short dose. He sounds really threatening, dangerous, and driven. Admittedly, it's probably easier to cut a decent promo when you haven't just been hit in the crotch. Yeah, that would definitely help me. Yeah. Rotunda was fine. Um, it was a little weird how little everyone had to say here, but it worked. And Sullivan was actually surprisingly sedate during his promo, as far as Sullivan goes. Though, admittedly, I've only really seen his later Dungeon of Doom stuff where he's completely bonkers, so it's not the best comparison. His repeated miming of kicking a dog in the background was probably the best part of this, though. He just takes some such inordinate joy in it. Well, I mean, he's going to be a little more calm. I mean, he's from Singapore, so he's into all the Eastern meditation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, he's still a druid, just to be clear. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely gets across that these guys are evil. Clearly the lesson is people that have college degrees are the worst people in the world. Yeah, yeah. I know that's how, how we advertise uh the college I work at, definitely, is you know, get a degree, you'll become a horrible person. <laughs> yeah. But you'll win the US tag team titles. Yeah, there you go. I could just find them. I know why they don't mic them directly. <laughs> Yeah, Dr. Death is loud. <laughs> we go back from the interview to our next match, which is the Russian Assassins, number one and number two, with Paul Jones versus Junkyard Dog and Ivan Koloff. Last show was the first one we had without Paul Jones on it in any way, which was weird. True, yeah. So he had lost his, uh, his soulmate. So they gave him a similar, different feud with a different sort of country guy, if Chloe was not enough to make it on the Starcade, so he figured, I gotta try something different. So, during this time, Nikita Koloff finally gets Ivan Koloff to sort of turn to his way of thinking, which is, you know, US isn't all bad, you can play fair, you know, you're really, really good, let's all work together and we'll, you know, 
will be good people now. Paul Jones' response to that is to bring in two mass wrestlers known as the Russian Assassins. And yes, one of them is Jack Victory, the guy that is the, <laughs> of course. the replacement for Dennis Condry, you'll see later. Great. <laughs> it's Jack John Rumble. Yeah. So this is his first debut on these on these shows. It kind of makes me sad that neither of them, presumably, is one of the assassins from the first uh, Starcade. Does it? No. Okay, just checking. <laughs> but yeah, so he brings in Russian assassins and targets the now technically term Russian turncoat. It does still apply. They just I guess turned, so, yeah, yeah, because they were Russian turned against it. So yeah, it's the good version of being Russian turncoat. Take note of that, Stephen Zagal. <laughs> Uh, the only problem we have is that a short period of time before this show, Nikita Koloff uh, takes uh, personal time because his wife is sick, and he actually has gone with the motion for quite a while. Yeah. So on the December 7th class show, they announced his replacement, which is the junkyard dog. Yeah. Bit of a downgrade. Yeah, um... I believe she does end up passing during this period, doesn't she? In, uh, in, in mid-89, yeah. Yeah, so obviously a really sad experience for many reasons. But sure. yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely sad to not see Nikita. We we were seeing him, I think, really, really coming to his own last year. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's a totally understandable reason to interrupt your career. Absolutely. Sympathies on that situation, definitely. Of course. Junkyard Dog has some very 80s music. That's the only way I can describe it. (laughs) Ivan Koloff has a chain. The Russian assassins have Paul Jones, I guess, and masks. Confusingly, Paul Jones is called number one Paul Jones, but we also have Russian assassin number one and number two. The Russian assassin's weight is not given, and Ivan Koloff gets the kilos instead of pounds thing. It's kind of weird that they bother giving the weight for him and not for them, but whatever. JR steals your earlier joke, Al, and calls Junkyard Dog and Koloff Felix and Oscar wrestling's odd couple. (laughs) (laughs) If the assassins lose this match, they must unmask and Paul Jones must retire. Someone in the crowd aggressively yells that Paul Jones is going down and starts chanting USA. Koloff is on the face team too, just just saying. Oh, I also, I didn't I just mentioned this, but but as you mentioned, there's the stipulation if they lose, there is no other stipulation to it. So basically, if the Russian assassins win, they gain nothing, other than the ability to keep their mask and to keep their manager. Yeah, that is a little odd. <laughs> um, we also see a great dot matrix printer sign in the crowd oh, calling yeah. for the assassins to unmask, although assassins is misspelled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still, like, that was a real blast from the past. Dot Matrix. Mm-hmm. Good gosh. Continuous paper, baby. <laughs> JYD beats up Assassin number one and does his crawling headbutt spot. Jones seems to be late for a spot where he's supposed to put number one's foot on the ropes for a pin, so number one just kind of does it himself. Number two doesn't fare any better and gets punched out of the ring over the ropes. Jones puts number two's foot under the ropes on a pin with the proper timing this time. Koloff in, and he beats up number two and gets choked takedown, uh, like the one you liked Nikita doing last year, John. Yes. It's very fluid. Yes. Very aggressive. (laughs) Kaldo calls Ivan the most respected Russian athlete in wrestling. Sorry, Nikita. Ouch, yeah. 
Ivan does hit a pretty nice diving Russian sickle clothesline, so I guess he does deserve some respect. Koloff continues dominating when number one comes back in and tags JYD, but JYD misses a headbutt, and Caldo notes that while he brags about having the hardest head in wrestling, it clearly isn't as hard as the ring. The Assassin's team goes to beat up JYD, but number one accidentally nails number two with a double axe handle. The ref is busy with Koloff and misses JYD's pin attempt. Caldo notes that Paul Jones said that his men have to stay on top of these guys or he won't be around in 89. JR deadpans, well that would certainly break my heart. That put a damper on my new year. <laughs> I don't think he was being very sincere. No, man. Probably not. <laughs> no. Tag to number two, and number one flings him at JYD in the corner, the Russian missile. But JYD dodges, and number two hits the corner hard. Everybody gets in, and Koloff and JYD beat up the assassins and Paul Jones, as I lose track of which assassin is which. Koloff fights one next to the ropes as JYD whips another into the ropes. The assassin leapfrogs JYD and runs into Koloff, knocking the other assassin out of the ring. JYD hits an atomic drop on the assassin in the ring, and Koloff hits a standing sickle, but Jones puts something in the other assassin's mask. The assassin gets in the ring and headbutts Koloff, and that gets the three, as Long loses track of which assassin is legal. Yeah, it's definitely a drop in quality. <laughs> um, what are you talking nice. about? <laughs> I like JYD. Yeah, I don't hate JYD. I just think the match itself wasn't as good as the last two. <laughs> kind of reminded me, in not the best way, of that opening match we had on Starcade with Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. Yes. Who I just wanted to ask you to say his full silly name one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't said it in a while. Uh, and Bugs McGraw, the guy wearing like the boots that look like socks and all them. Yeah. Remind me a lot of that because that was the two assassins with the mask. I thought it was pretty impossible to tell which one was which. You did better than I did, so that's good for you. I guess. JR did better than you did. There you go. I followed JR. <laughs> Fair enough. I made no attempt to keep track of them. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> it's easier when one of them is really fat and one of them is really muscular. Yeah, yeah, it was much easier with the with the two assassins on the first show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it, it just didn't do a whole lot for me. It wasn't definitely not the worst match we've seen this, on this series, which was also a tag match, but... Following the two matches, it was a real drop-off in quality. It also didn't help that we're three matches in, and first three matches are all tag matches. Yeah. So you can't help but feel comparisons. I feel like it's kind of an opportunity to not call the Russian missile, just call it the ICBM. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, 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 I could see that. Speaking of changing of names, I really think that they should be called Ruskadors. <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. Because I think that would be a better name for them than the Russian assassins. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely shorter to say. And I like I like the very beginning uh, spot when uh, JYD comes in, takes off the chain, and then jumps into the ring, and the assassins just flee. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was that was good. I did not expect the num- the numerous amount of headbutts. Yeah, it's kind of the thing. <laughs> like WWJYD, it, it, it's headbutt. <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed the match, but uh, I noticed that Ivan um, seemed like he was moving in slow motion or was just scripted. It didn't seem like his heart was in it, and I didn't know any of the other backstory behind that. But uh, the spot where they have the two assassins and one leapfrogs and pushes him, he's just kind of like I'm moving at like a third or a fourth the speed he normally does. Hmm. And uh, he didn't do any like really massive, you know, over the head 
slams or anything. I, I thought actually JYD did a little bit more work in, hmm. in the match. But yeah, I, I didn't think Ivan's heart was in it that much. Yeah, you wonder if maybe there was a little bit of, uh, you know, I wanted to do this match with Nikita mm-hmm. going on possibly. Potentially. I guess how I'd describe it as not as bad as I'd feared. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I was expecting that this would be more like Assassin Number 1 and Buzz Tyler versus the Zambui Express. Yeah. When it's just like against two people that I have no idea who they are, the, the Russian assassins. And like my experience with the last assassin team was not good. So, you know, <laughs> but this was just kind of a basic match. No real screw ups. The moves looked fine. The only really good spots, um, in contrast to you, John, I actually thought the only really good spots belong to Ivan Koloff. <laughs> so, yeah. no. uh, I, I don't know. I just, I, I read, read it opposite, I guess. Um, I really liked his nice diving clothesline in particular. JYD's crawling headbutts kind of confused me. It's a, it's a fun little <laughs> spot, but I don't get how that's supposed to actually hurt. It's intimidation. I guess. And the Russian assassins just kind of feel like they're there. They're capable enough, but they're not very interesting, and they don't really have a lot going on. Well, because they don't talk. Yeah. That's part of it. I do respect that number two really threw himself at the corner on the uh, missed Russian missile spot, though. He was willing to do what he had to for that spot, and it looked like it hurt. Kind of a dull match to me, but it was short, and it did keep moving. The ending is a little weird. Long can clearly see that Koloff was pinning an assassin before the other one headbutted him. So how did Long think that this was working out? Did he think, oh, Ivan's stupid. He was definitely pinning the wrong one. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) yeah, I'd get the twin magic spot if the ref didn't see the switch at all. But Long is clearly watching as they switch out, too. So, yeah, that is one thing I will say. They do look enough alike that they kind of swap it out. They just they just don't have the best timing for it or something. It's like, it needs to happen when Long is clearly not looking and there's no, there's nothing that would lead him to believe that there was a switch. Well, I mean, who's supposed to distract the referee? The manager? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that is what we're doing. He's busy tucking something into the mask. Does he look like some sort of like Italian racing coach or something? The, yeah. I, I could, I'm not, I'm not trying that. to be whatever, but like the mustache. His mustache is Mario-esque for sure. Okay. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a me, Paul Jones. <laughs> it's definitely better than his military getup. Yes, yes, I appreciated the change away from that. Well, his Dracula cape is pretty cool. That one. yes, that I would love him to go back to. Yeah. So the story moving forward is that Paul Jones leaves the promotion during 1989, as does Ivan Koloff. You want to guess which month he leaves in? January. Yes. Yes. The streak continues. Yes. <laughs> The Russian assassins hang around just not as Russian assassins, because they're just two guys you can stick in any mask or outfit. Yeah. But don't worry, JYD is just going to stick around for the next couple of years, so you have that to look forward to. Okay. We don't get a JYD promo on this one, but I do actually really like his promos, I do have to say. He has a good, just like, really exuberant kind of style. He had a pretty good one on that the class show we watched prep for this. We go back to the announcers, and JR and Caudle discuss the matches so far. Caudle says, we've seen three great matches. I agree on two. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you two. You know, usually by this point, we have one of those rope or flail or chain or or something, you know, some sort of special match for the third slot. That's true. 
pacing of this at placement is really weird because they have ultimately three singles matches and four tag matches, but put three tag matches in a row. That's just bizarre to me. Because we got that. That's what it felt like with the first show. There was a lot of tag matches. Yeah. Just another way that this uh, kind of returns to the first show again, I guess. Our next match is Rick Steiner versus Mike Rotunda with Games Master Kevin Sullivan for Rotunda's NWA World Television Championship. In January of 88, then Florida heavyweight champion Mike Rotunda wins the TV title off of um, Takeda. He decides he's going to keep both titles, so he gifts the Florida heavyweight title to Rick Steiner, who then proceeds to wrestle with and defend it for quite a long time. So it kind of makes his own, at least. As it becomes clear that Rick Steiner is very popular, he's sort of growing that way, and he, he sort of finds his comic character. They realize they have, to turn, they have to break up the group and turn them against him. So they have Megatunda basically ask for his title back. He wants to be dual champion again. Rick Steiner says no. So they kick him out of the group. And in turn, they point out to the board directors, who apparently were not paying attention <laughs> to this, how the title was, was just literally just given to Rick Steiner. And they go, oh, yeah, that's true. We'll take the title off of him now. In the board of directors' defense, they were probably fairly occupied with company finances at the time, so... <laughs> yeah, their accountants kept calling and telling him to have to do something. But yeah, so he loses the title that he didn't actually win, but had treated like he had won all this time. So it says, hey, I'm down a title. Might as well take uh, Rotunda's title. Okay. But he defended it successfully, right? Correct. But he didn't initially win it. So that's the excuse they use for getting it off of him. Oh. Steiner's music is the same as the Varsity Club music. And uh, the Varsity Club music is neither of the fight songs for University of Michigan or Syracuse University, nor is it the Oklahoma Sooners fight song. Yeah, the only thing I could think was maybe it's the song for Sullivan's own Miskatonic University. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think if you hear that song, it drives you insane. So then they're allowed to play that. In oh, song. okay. Yeah, true. JR says something that we can barely hear about talking to Alex before the match, but not being able to hear what he had to say. Ironic. Caudle doesn't understand what's going on with Steiner, and JR notes that people are barking for Steiner. A cage is lowered. Sullivan will be in the cage for this match. Sullivan doesn't like the idea, but Teddy Long forces him to get in. Sullivan does look ominous in his hooded robe as he's raised into the air. Breaking the mood, we get another dot matrix sign of an adorable cartoon dog labeled Rick Steiner, the new TV champion. (laughs) (laughs) Someone was busy with their printer. The fans chant, Syracuse sucks. Rotunda and Steiner start with a shoving match that quickly comes to trading blows, and Steiner wins that as Rotunda rolls out to calm down. Steiner gets to show off his power early on, even using one arm to hurl Rotunda across the ring when Rotunda grabs a wrist lock, which looked really cool. JR says hello to Steiner's mom for him. After a massive clothesline, Rotunda flees outside again and Steiner talks to his hand puppet, Alex. Back in, they move to mat wrestling, and Steiner wins that contest with a smooth hammerlock, then bites Rotunda on the butt. He, and the crowd, deny the biting when ref Teddy Long asks. <laughs> Funny spot, but it's weird the ref stops to ask the crowd what happened. Yeah, he just it's kind of Teddy Long's thing over this show. He occasionally will ask the crowd on a spot, and it is funny that they defend Steiner on this, yeah. I thought. Same he didn't ask them if... Uh, 
they had shoved a piece of metal under their mask earlier. Yeah, so yeah. Might have changed that story completely. <laughs> Steiner grabs side headlocks in between rapid sequences of power moves and mat wrestling. There's a very smooth transition from a Steiner headlock takedown to a rotunda leg scissor hold in particular. Rotunda is clearly bothered by the crowd's barking and chants as Steiner dances to it. JR says that the crowd should have brought dog biscuits and collars. Rotunda gets fed up and walks out, threatening to leave. He eventually comes back, and the crowd rewards him by chanting, Syracuse sucks. JR respectfully disagrees about Syracuse. Steiner gets flung through the ropes, and JR says that he landed on his head. JR also notes that that was probably the safest place for Steiner to land. <laughs> Rotunda wears Steiner down and grabs a headlock, using the ropes for leverage. The fans inform Teddy Long, and he makes Rotunda break. Steiner wins a slugfest, but gets taken back down into the headlock again. Steiner fights free, but Rotunda hits a great diving clothesline to take him down. But Steiner grabs the ropes to dodge a dropkick. Steiner hits one of the biggest clotheslines I have ever seen, as JR notes that people in the maritime provinces and sailors out at sea could have heard that one. <laughs> Dr. Death comes down to the ring as Steiner hits a huge power slam for two. Steiner hits a belly-to-belly -belly suplex and Long counts one, but Dr. Death rings the bell early. Steiner, being an idiot, thinks a one count was enough to win him the match. Teddy Long thinks that the time limit expired and goes to raise Rotunda's hand, but ref Tommy Young comes down and clues Teddy Long in on what happened. The cage lowers, and Kevin Sullivan comes over to try to argue his side, but Tommy Young lectures him, and Teddy Long restarts the match. Rotunda hits Steiner, but Steiner rams him into Sullivan and pins him, and gets the three, from both refs. <laughs> The crowd erupts in one of the loudest cheers we've yet heard on this or any other show, as Steiner runs laps around the ring, elated. With a tremendous grin on his face, he grabs the belt and waves it above his head as he sprints towards backstage. I really like most of the match. Um, I like that it builds up Rick Steiner while also not doing too much to Megratunda. It comes clear, kind of like with the first match, that the power aspect is just too hard to overcome. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, there is definitely there's this really solid technical side to Rick Steiner here, as we see a lot later. He's a very good technical wrestler, and he can do sort of all of that. Uh, Rotunda does really well sort of playing his heelish character, doing the whole I'm going to walk out here thing, all that. My only real issue is the way they handle the ending. I feel like it must have been a match where they tried the tricking him thing before ring the bell. Maybe. So they don't make that clear watching this. Like with the um, Ron Garvin spot in the last show. They made a point of when Ric Flair kicks out of the sunset flip, they say, well, that's how he won the title last True. time. Yeah. If that has more context to it, it would help. Maybe, but I don't have it. That said, obviously, the crowd seems to have no problem with any of that. And I do like seeing him celebrate and having everything turned on them. I just wish they... It's one of the things where it doesn't ruin the match. It's just it's an unnecessary level... For me, that they could, if they'd done without it, it would have been just fine too. I still liked it a lot, though. This is the first time I've seen Mike Rotunda, and uh, despite the unfortunate naming, I thought that uh, he, uh, you know, he, he was a decent wrestler, but I think he, he's a very good, arrogant heel throughout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he plays it, you know, into his, his mannerisms and everything. He does bad things to uh, Steiner, but. Even how he talks to the ref just seems like, why are we even having this problem? Yeah. <laughs> I like the ending uh, just because it's different. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. 
Like usually you have these situations where one ref is knocked out and another one comes in or, you know, there was, there seems like there was a finality and consensus when Steiner makes that quick lunge and, and takes him out. They're both quick to respond. And I didn't know about the other belt situation, but they should have given him both titles because <laughs> <laughs> he had he pinned him twice, but that didn't happen. But the crowd is clearly on Steiner's side. I think a large part of that is due to Mike Rotunda's uh, performance. Yeah. Yeah, the crowd was seriously into this one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's impossible not to feel good for Steiner with his celebration at the end there. Both of these guys were great athletes who could put on a good show with both Matt wrestling and convincing power moves, like you were saying, Al. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was half amateur wrestling and half the usual pro style. And that gave it a very different feel than the other matches that we've seen tonight. Both were really smooth and made good use of their characters to get the crowd incredibly hyped up. Steiner in particular was clearly having a great time and that made the match easy to enjoy. It did get a little repetitive at points with a lot of reliance on headlocks as transition moves. I would have appreciated a little more variety there, but the rest of what they were doing was exceptional. There's a great mix of different tactics from both, excellent emotion in the match, and inspiration in the crowd, and a very, very fun storyline. I really liked Rotunda playing up just how much the crowd was bothering him without really ever slowing the match down. Yeah, I can see that. And Steiner playing along with the crowd and just having fun with it. I was worried about the ending, but I actually think that it worked out all right. I think what what made it work to me is when I realized it's Steiner beating the whole varsity club. Hmm. The way that they did that ending takes it from being just Steiner beating Rotunda to Steiner overcoming Kevin Sullivan and his plans as well. And that, I think, is important because Sullivan's the guy that's saying, you know, Steiner, what an idiot. Steiner, we traded in him for a better guy. And he overcomes the actions of all three of them rather than just Rotunda. He does fall for the trick at first, though. Yeah. So but... before he disproved Kevin uh, Sullivan's point. True, yeah. But, I mean, he he like he overcomes despite the mm-hmm. best efforts of Kevin Sullivan and his emissary, Dr. Death. I think it it works as like giving him a victory over the whole club rather than giving him a victory over just one part of it. It makes sense with that, that Steiner has this super elated response because it feels like he got one over on everybody. Sure. And Steiner felt like he won twice. Yes. <laughs> Almost three times. <laughs> I have two notes. One, it's getting to the reduction issues. We get to see Rick Steiner thrown out of the ring. We don't actually see his landing. True. Yeah. When they say it's really impactful. So I guess we've got to take his word for how he landed and how, how much it hurt him. Yeah. There was that Dr. Jesse Williams comes out, rings the bell, and just walks away and doesn't seem to try to come back when things get turned around. Yeah. True. It is fairly quick, but it'd be, it would be nice to like cut to him like at the entryway like and like you know shaking his fist like oh get you next time (laughs) because it feels like he's like oh rung the bell time to go yeah i guess the idea is he's so confident that it's gonna work but yeah yeah, it is a little odd like i said it's not a real big deal because that whole sequence is fairly quick at the end not like they have another match after that right play time but it's it's kind of funny that he never like show him trying to get back yeah true the TV title stays fairly competitive. The traded around a few times. Rick Steiner's reign isn't too long, unfortunately. And by the end of the year, ends up in the hands of someone we will see on the next show for the very first time, the Great Muda. Oh, cool. 
we go back to the announcers, and Tony and Magnum talk about the match. Tony notes that champs so far are, are 0 for 2 at Starcade. Both are very happy for Steiner. Magnum points out that no one was expecting the title changes so far because matches are generally in the champion's favor, but anything can happen at Starcade. We go to our next match, which is Bam Bam Bigelow with Sir Oliver Humperdink. <laughs> Pause versus, <for> laughter. Yeah. <laughs> versus Barry Windham with J.J. Dillon for Windham's NWA United States Heavyweight Championship. The overall story is that Barry Windham is a good guy starting out the year. Him and Luger are team up together. They defeat the Horsemen a couple times. But then right at the peak period where after their big victory, he then turns on Luger and joins the Horsemen. Mm. And not too long after that, he wins the U.S. title, thus putting him in that spot where he's the mid-card younger support guy in the group, which literally Luger was last show. Yeah. As far as direct feud between the two of them, there's actually really not much as far as Bam Bam and Wyndham. They really just build up Bam Bigelow as coming into the area and challenge for the title. Mm. So in a way, it's like what they did with Superstar Billy Graham, where they just go, hey, Superstar Billy Graham's going to be at Starcade. He's getting the U.S. title match. Just this big, noteworthy outsider. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Though at least with Graham, they make a point of he had previously held the title, and he had big names. So like, well, let's just give him the title match. Whereas Bam Bam, they're doing it because uh, he came from WBF. Hmm. And that's why he's getting a title match. Bam Bam Bigelow comes out in his awesome black bodysuit with flames, with Sir Oliver Humperdink in a green Hawaiian shirt and some kind of weird sumo shirt with a green cartoon figure on it, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. I couldn't get it out of there. He's a leprechaun. <laughs> okay, sumo leprechaun? Mm-hmm. Barry Windham is already in the ring, which felt a little bit weird. Yeah, right? Some in the crowd loudly chant for Bam Bam during the introductions. He is definitely popular. Mm-hmm. Caudle tells us that Bigelow was announced at 390 pounds, but he'd had 396 in his notes, so he theorizes that Bigelow didn't eat as large a Christmas dinner as expected. <laughs> JR puts it down to Bigelow trying to improve his cardio to keep up with Windham. I think that may be the more rational explanation. Yeah, it's a Better explanation. <laughs> they have a slow and careful start, with Wyndham taking time to try to come up with different strategies, but nothing really works for him. Bigelow even just pops right back up after a backdrop, earning a good freakout from Wyndham, who scampers right out of the ring on that. Later, Bigelow just flat out ignores several hard punches to the face and gets a huge military press slam on Wyndham, who rolls out to talk to Dylan. With Wyndham having slipped in and out of the ring several times by that point, Ref Tommy Young mimes him getting in and out, clearly exasperated. JR notes that Bigelow doesn't move like a man that's nearly 400 pounds. He's a lot faster. Bigelow batters Wyndham with corner punches, and Wyndham pulls out his own version of the flare flop. A Bigelow dropkick, really impressive, sends Wyndham out over the top rope, and Dylan quickly demands a DQ, but it's turned down. It wasn't a throw, so yet again, that rule doesn't matter. <laughs> uh... Bigelow gets a nice stalling suplex and leans heavily on Wyndham on a reverse chin lock as the announcers note that he's wearing Wyndham out by making him carry his weight. Wyndham desperately throws Bigelow out through the middle ropes, and Bigelow lands on his knee, but Bigelow comes back in with a splash over the ropes, but he lets Wyndham up at the two count. Bigelow gets up on the top turnbuckle for a massive splash, but Wyndham dodges and Bigelow is dazed. Caudle points out that Bigelow could have won the match if he just stayed down on the earlier pin. Bigelow got overconfident. 
Wyndham takes over and nails a high-speed diving lariat and shows off his power by easily lifting Bigelow in a belly-to-back suplex. A notable portion of the crowd cheers Wyndham as he knocks Bigelow into the ring post, gets him back in, and gets his claw hold. Bigelow stumbles to the corner to force a break. Wyndham makes body-slamming Bigelow look easy, mm-hmm. but Bigelow dodges an elbow drop off the top rope and starts fighting back. Wyndham hits a desperation crossbody, but both spill over the top rope, and the two brawl outside as Young counts. Wyndham rams Bigelow into the post and darts back into the ring, and Bigelow can't get back in before 10. Wyndham wins by countout. It's really good at first, the story that Bam Bigelow is just so strong and powerful, and Wyndham is sort of befuddled by this. It's a pretty classic wrestling story, but definitely works here, because Bam Bam has that sort of air around him where you can yeah. believe anytime he's he's no-selling this and, you know, throwing the guy around. It's a little weird that they have him try to get, actually, seem like he could have won, but literally lift the guy up. Yeah. Just turn the match around. The story of the night is slightly tweaking the formula, which I guess is good. Just, I don't know how well that one works. Obviously, like, I'll say many, many times in many, many episodes, my issue is a finish. Because they're fighting outside, and that is a very, very fast 10 count. It is a fast 10 count. Yeah, I'll give you that. It's like a six count, maybe, if I'm being generous. <laughs> the match is really good. It's just, you know, it has really has two solid parts. As Bam Bam unstoppable, and then once Awakens is there, Wyndham really can actually exploit that and sort of shows off there. But then once it starts turning on again, it just stops. Yeah. Speaking of his pain tolerance and everything, the announcers even take time to build up that um, his head tattoo took like a full year yes. of of like appointments to get fully done. So they kind of use that as building up. This guy can endure, you know, quite a lot there as well. So it's kind of an interesting way of building it up, I guess. Absolutely. It's all in preparation. <laughs> I actually like Bam Bam. I, I mean, I enjoyed watching him in WWF. It is beguiling how many splashes and 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 like like Dusty. He does move. Uh, he carries his weight well. And why I never really bought into the character too much. Uh, he does have a, a lot of prowess, and he didn't really like hesitate at all during the match to fill that role. Wyndham. Reminds me of Dar the Beastmaster. I think everyone is starting to remind me of that. There's there's a point where he re- reco- recovers and he screams and everything after Bigelow misses that that giant splash off the top turnbuckle, and he screams and he holds his arms. I was waiting for ferrets to like jump <laughs> from the crowd and, and then and aid him in winning. Should have morphed into squirrel form and gone out there, John. Maybe. <laughs> you know, I I didn't want uh, Wyndham to win, but uh, that is what it is. Yeah. This had a bit of a slower pace than the earlier matches, but it still felt intense. Bigelow came off, like you were saying, as very tough, very durable, very strong, had a really impressive showing. It's amazing how well he moves for such a big guy. And this is without him showing off his ability to actually do cartwheels at his size. Mm-hmm. He uh, he looked great in this match, and it was a very effective way of showing off his abilities. Wyndham, for his part, got to show off how surprisingly strong he is. He doesn't look like he's got a lot of pure power to him. Yeah. But between this match and last year's match, man, he, he's a strong guy. He knows how to use his uh, his his muscle, I guess. It's all tendon strength, as we yeah. probably would say. Yeah, it was impressive that he could lift a guy repeatedly as 
big as Bigelow without really any problems. I felt like the match was maybe a little bit too neat and tidy. There's a real, this is Bigelow's section, now this is Wyndham's section feel to it. Yeah. And while that exists in most matches, it, it felt a little more obvious here, I guess I'd say. On the ending, I'm kind of torn on it. I I get what you're saying on it. It's, you know, it's another kind of not that great finish, but I do like that it's really clear that Wyndham tactically does this. Mm-hmm. He he has better ring awareness, better like awareness of the count than Bigelow. So he chooses his moment to run Bigelow into the post and dart back into the ring. And so it actually does feel like a true win for Wyndham. I like that it wasn't just like an accidental thing. Wyndham sure, no, intentionally yeah. does this at just the right moment. And the announcers do a good job afterwards of building that up, I thought. But it is a pretty flat finish for a match that I think could have gone further and could have gotten even more intense. They they seem to be like hitting their stride and then it ends. Yeah. Not as suddenly as Dr. Death versus Wyndham last year, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> I was hitting something else. Yes. Yeah. Still, it was a fun match. It had some great character work in it and some really impressive power moves. I just don't feel like it reached its full potential. Yeah, and I get what you're saying with it being tactical, but trying to get the counter, but for me, it's still a count-out finish mm-hmm. and a title match, and it, it just, the abruptness of it. Yeah. I would like to know where numbers 7 through 10 went, you know. Well, the crowd didn't seem happy, and the, even the announcer's like, yeah, he left uh, under the 8 count, and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I had more storyline context for why Oliver Humperdinck and a guy later be known as the Big Kahuna. This is the same guy, mind you. Yeah. Is managing Bayman Bigelow from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Big scary guy with a flame tattoo on his head. Yeah. For any fault he may have, Paul Jones would always adjust his look and style to the people he was with. True, yeah. Or the way that you'll later see with Jimmy Hart, where he has a jacket for every person he manages. Oh my gosh, I love the Jimmy Hart jackets, yeah. It's not really a thing that matches, kind of thing i notice is like i don't see the connection between the manager and the guy yeah true that's the only thing so there is a pay dispute among other issues between the new management of the company and bim bigelow of course. it's described as a pay dispute and an issue of control and but you can guess what month he leaves in january yes <sighs> good to know that even with a new company we've got the same dang month causing problems yeah <laughs> He uh, goes off to All Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, where he stays for quite a while. We will see him in a year, because he's in Starcade 2000. <laughs> um, Barry Windham also leaves the new WCW in 89. It's later. Uh-huh. It's later. He uh, takes time off to rehab a hand injury. Oh, okay. And then signs the WWF. After a quick discussion where Caudill and JR highlight that Windham clearly paid close attention to where the count was, and that's what won him the match... They throw to Magnum TA backstage with Rick Steiner. Stand here with the new world television champion Rick Steiner. Despite all odds, despite all the confusion, you pulled it off just like you said. You know, Mike's t- he's a tough, tough wrestler, but you know, every every dog has his day, and today I, I it was my day. Well, did, did you and Alex do a lot of planning for this? Well, you see, I get tired of them calling me stupid all the time, and and, and, and now Kevin Sullivan and his Stupid back, tricky backfire. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it. It was great. It was great. Well, rest of the year, 
No, I didn't say that. Alex may have told you, you that. I didn't say that. You told me that. No, I, I didn't say that. you give me free TV? No, you got the World Television Championship. That's a tremendous title, and you're going to have a lot of people coming down trying to take that belt away from you. Who? Well, a lot of the wrestlers. A lot of guys are going to want to shout out that belt. When? Well, coming up here in the future. Really? Yeah. I'll beat them. Well, that'd be really? great. And where's your dog? Yeah, where's Spike? Where's Spike at? Oh, I left him home in a cage. He didn't want to cut airline them. You know them airlines. They won't let him fly because he's a pit bull and... I don't know. Well, regardless of whether Spike was here, I know this is one of the greatest days in your wrestling career. I'm glad to be standing here beside you. Thank you. And I hope you are very successful at defending this title. Thank you very much. Let me shake your hand. All right. Let's go back to more action at ringside right now. <laughs> this was like no interview ever. That's true. Normally, the interview more like intros the promo than lets the wrestler take over till the next question. But with this one, it was more Magnum being in charge and Steiner kind of just commenting on what he said. Part of that is because the sound cut out and we missed what looked like a longer bit of Steiner talking. But even so, it feels really unique. Steiner comes off as really like nice and likable, if not too bright. Yeah. And Magnum seems genuinely amused by his antics. They kind of have some good chemistry together, I think. So it came together fairly well for me. It's it's hard to hear because part of it is the part that's missing, but um, Steiner clearly thinks that winning the TV title gets him free TV service. <laughs> Pretty good deal. <laughs> Which is pretty amusing. I am not as fond of the Alex hand puppet stuff and, and all because it kind of puts it a little more towards the category of does he actually have some kind of disability or handicap or something? Right. Rather than just being, you know, amusingly not that bright. Yeah, it gets a little bit more questionable to me, but Steiner's clueless act for me is otherwise pretty good. And he and Magnum, like I said, played off each other pretty well. Yeah, there's a fine line between sort of being simple and, you know, really very friendly like the way he is and being, you know, say, radio from the movie Radio, Cuba Gooding Jr., where there's obviously an actual thing causing him to be that way. Yeah. But I think he he managed to steer it just the not the right direction at least. Yeah. No, he's he's excited. I mean, like it, yeah. if if that's the character, he's playing it well. I I don't know why they asked him about his dog or whatever, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. He's just trying to look for something to say because clearly uh, Steiner was not taking the initiative and in, yeah. in saying things. So, but I did like the exchange. You know, like he. He's obviously excited, <laughs> and I like that he came back like immediately, like, who's going to take it? When? Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, like, tonight? Sure. <laughs> Our next match is Sting and Dusty Rhodes versus the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, with Precious Paul Ellering for the Road Warriors NWA World Tag Team Championship. As the middle of the year approaches, the Road Warriors sort of slowly get a little more aggressive and get more heelish to the point where they beat the United Express in a pretty brutal match to win the titles that they didn't have. Um, as part of that, they're then confronted by Sting Dusty Rhodes, who don't like their new attitude and the way they've turned. So Dusty being Dusty is never backing down from a fight, calls him into the ring, says, you know, guys want to take me out. This is after they tried to take Sting out. The, the, the idea is that they attacked him, probably tried to break his neck. The idea is they're going above and beyond what you need to do to be champions. Right, yeah. Like Dusty says in the opening, violence for the sake of violence. Exactly. 
So they have an exchange on the November 26th WWE show where they come in the ring and they get the best of Dusty in a two-on-one exchange. It's not clear why Sting isn't there much sooner, but he, he kind of works on his own schedule. During the beatdown, Animal takes off one of the shoulder pads, which apparently just sort of screws off very easily from his uh, outfit, which is kind of surprising to learn. You'd think that'd be like welded in or stuck in. He's like, no, it just kind of comes right off for easy shipping, I guess. And then attacks Dusty. He is. He's supposed to be stabbing him in the eye with the spike. <sighs> yeah. It's a pretty bloody thing. So, of course, they run the segment live-ish. It's always a tape show. And then at the end of the show, recap and play the entire section all over again. So that leads us to this match where there's even more reason for Sting and Dusty to try and take these guys down because they're, they're affecting everyone and everything around them with their violence. Also, as part of this, they were in a six-man tag with Dusty Rhodes with the rarely mentioned NWA World Six-Man Tag Team Championships. <laughs> so once they turn heel, they don't like Dusty anymore, obviously. He doesn't like them. So they set up a match at that December 7th Clash show between Dusty and, I believe it's Animal. And whoever wins that gets to control the titles. It's won via DQ by Animal because Dusty literally breaks the legs off of a metal, the sort of combination metal plastic chairs, where the legs are metal, but they're stuck in a plastic base. Mm-hmm. Really, like, breaks that off on his leg, which looks pretty painful. Yeah. So the Road Warriors get to pick their own third person, but it amounts to nothing, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't affect this match at all. Sting has some awesome face paint this year. Mm. Uh cool light blue and white pattern it looks great dusty is wearing a shirt that matches the color pattern which is always a nice thing i like to see when you get two singles wrestlers working together that one of them at least tries to kind of match up the other's look a little bit yeah sure give them a little bit more team identity the road warriors for their part still look awesome oh yeah that spiked shoulder pads look will never get old Mm-mm. they are two Mm-mm. big dudes the Road Warriors attack right after taking off their spikes, only to get beaten back by Sting and Dusty, with Sting hitting one heck of a dropkick on Hawk in particular. The Road Warriors back off outside the ring for a few moments to regroup, then slowly come back in to let the announcer actually do the introductions. Sting gets massive, massive cheers, especially after he does a stinger call. Dusty likewise gets really big cheers, though you can hear a few Road Warriors fans booing. Mm-hmm. The Road Warriors get loads of boos, but after the noise goes down, a few guys can be heard chanting LOD. Sting and Animal start, and Animal tries to overpower Sting, but Sting uses his agility to stay ahead of Animal and get the crowd into it, including a stinger call during a leapfrog. Actually, during the leapfrog. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And another heck of a dropkick. Sting gets Dusty in for a bit to work on Animal's arm and claw at his eyes, and Animal tags out to Hawk, who goes aggressively after Dusty. Dusty escapes him to bring Sting back in. The hawk rakes Sting's eyes and lands rapid punches and stomps in the corner, dazing Sting. He lays in more punches as Sting stands, and Sting misses one big haymaker, but lands a second to knock Hawk flat. Sting beats his chest and the crowd erupts as Sting gets a flurry of offense on Hawk, culminating in a great jumping elbow drop. Hawk tags Animal, who catches Sting with a military press but Sting catches himself when Animal goes to drop him on the ropes and fires back with rapid strikes and clotheslines. Animal retreats to take a breather, and Sting just dives right out after him to knock him down, then does an excited little jig and Stinger call for massive cheers. <laughs> and this time, we actually get to see the dive. Yes. 
in a rare bit, the camera crew catches something this time that they did they missed last time. <laughs> True. On purpose. Yeah. Dusty in, and he starts working Animal's knee, but Animal tags Hawk, so Dusty gets Hawk with the figure four instead. But Animal evades Sting to break it up. Hawk recovers and focuses abuse on Dusty's face for hobbles of pain and one definite audible swear. I heard you, Dusty. Mm-hmm. Hawk also hits a nice dropkick. Dusty starts to recover and hits his own respectable dropkick, but Hawk and Animal trade off to keep him down. Hawk ultimately tries a sleeper, but Dusty frees himself with some kind of proto-stunner. <laughs> yeah, it look very similar. Hawk tags Animal, but Dusty dives and tags Sting. Sting charges in and takes control, leading up to a big stinger splash to Animal's back. He grabs the scorpion deathlock, but Hawk gets in to break it up. Dusty gets in to try to defend Sting, but Hawk throws Sting over the top rope while the ref isn't looking. Hawk and Animal beat Dusty up, but Dusty kicks Animal in the nuts and ducks a Hawk clothesline, missed by the camera, shown in the replay, to send Hawk out of the ring. Sting climbs up on the top turnbuckle and dives off onto Animal for the one, two, and Paul Ellering pulls ref Tommy Young out of the ring for the DQ. Dusty beats up Ellering after the match, and Hawk comes in to try to beat up Sting, but Sting hits a big enziguri to take him out of the ring. Tommy Young holds up Sting and Dusty's arms to monster cheers, but Dusty and Sting do a good job of congratulating each other, but looking bummed at the DQ win, since it doesn't earn them the titles. I really like the overall story of the match. It's very clear that the Road Warriors are very vicious, Sting and Dusty have to do their best to sort of survive, almost. And they do their, they do a really good job of, of sort of mixing up the offense, doing the power stuff. Dusty's big thing here, not to sound neat, but he's on the downturn wrestling-wise with his physical abilities. Though he does do that nice dropkick, and his, he has good moments. It's not like he had nothing to give. It's, just, it's clearly not the same guy he was in, say, 85 in that really lengthy match with Flair. Yeah, the dropkick just surprised me because I've seen him try to do a dropkick before and the first time wasn't too good. Oh, yeah. But this one, it looked like, oh, that's respectable. <laughs> yeah. So. That part aside, he does his role there fairly well because he's really likable. He has his strikes and it goes back to the story of him, the eye being attacked. Yeah. It helps make it clear that even if you like LOD, they're trying to blind a man and they're definitely the bad guys here. Yeah. There's not as much gray as maybe they want to think. Unsurprisingly, my issue is the finish. <laughs> it's just the final part of the finish. It goes straight through like it would normally for a win, and then manager pulling the breath out and attacking was just like the sort of laziest way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a shame because I really liked everything moving up to it. Then, like with the match before, it just kind of stops because here's the ending of the match, and we're not having a title change, and we're not giving you a clear ending. And one of those things, I... Like with the Bamba match, when I probably liked, if I didn't care about the match and it's great finish, then it wouldn't bother me because I had no investment. But both times they had an investment, and then I just get it, everything pulled out from under me, and I get to enjoy it. Yeah, this one, the ending bothered me a lot more than the Bam Bam match. The Bam Bam match, it felt like, okay, that's still a win for Wyndham. Yeah, and I, I completely get what you're saying there, yeah. Where with this one, it felt like, okay, that's just really cheap. I get the rules are rules idea, but come on, if I was the ref and my hand was clearly about to come down for the third time and I got pulled out of the ring by the heel manager, I'd just slap the mat from the outside and award the match to Sting. <laughs> and, you know, the ref has discretion on the top rope stuff all the time. We see that all the time, that that thing gets ignored or excused or, yeah, yeah. oh, the ref's decision, yada, yada. He doesn't have a discretion on this. He has to DQ him because they laid his hands on him. It's like, it feels like he should have a choice, right? 
Yeah. He is the Rev. Yeah, you would think he'd be able to decide, no, I was about to count three, so three, win, good, <laughs> you know? I'm going to go back to the beginning of the match because I, I want to be really excited. I don't want okay. to think, I don't want to <laughs> think about yeah. the end. You know, I'm I'm happy to see Dusty Rhodes and uh, Sting and, and, and they're working the crowd. I feel a little bit for Dusty at this point in the match. I'm like, well, he, Sting's getting all the love with the camera. But when you when they zoom out, you can see the crowds cheering equally. You know, yeah. they're just they're just taking their time, you know, but it looks like Dusty's has fallen Sting around in, <laughs> in the very beginning. And then when they go to the next uh, camera uh, switch to do the entrance for the Road Warner Warriors, I don't know if it's the lighting or whatever it is. And I'm thinking, oh, this is stock footage. This is sort of, you know, like whatever. They're, they're, they're doing one of their entrance thing. They're going to build them up, you know, a little bit. And then I'm like, I didn't even notice that they got in the ring with <laughs> Dusty and Sting. And I'm like, okay, so where's what, what's this promo going to tell me? And then they start fighting. Like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Why is this? <laughs> what, 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 what's going on? I could see that actually. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, a very uh, abrupt and, and and wonderful beginning. This match really like tugged at me quite a bit. Uh, at this point, I'm watching through uh, Starcade 1988. Um, I'm wondering why isn't this the main show? Because I, I want to root for all four contestants. I, I like Sting and I like Dusty and you know we we have met Hawk. Yeah. And Animal um, is is always a great presence, you know, you know he, whether his leg's broken or not, you know, he's just, he's doing good. I kind of wish Dusty had face paint on so that they would have all have face paint. That's true. Yeah, that's one thing that he could have done to even more imitate uh, Sting's look. And it would have looked cool, actually. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's not a downside in the match for me until the end. I'm just rooting for every person. Anytime it cuts to them, I'm like, all right, this is great. And uh, you know, Animal, in particular, seems exceptionally brutal, uh, uh, this one. Like, he's biting Dusty's head. One of the, the great spots is um, where Animal's working on him, and, you know, Dusty's holding on to the ring, and he just starts, like, flopping around and, and dancing. And they have Sting in the back, like, calling to the crowd. And, you know, it's just like, I'm like, that's such a uh, a Dusty way to shrug off blows and, and come back. You know, he's just like, I'm just rolling with it, whatever. You know, like, it just it fits his personality. <laughs> sure. As far as the ending, at least they're doing things differently. They're trying to, to do different endings with all the math head, you know, the double count out with two refs. And I'm glad that, you know, Rhodes and Sting win, though. You know, with the them take going after Dusty, this is kind of little adds a little bit of resolution to their storyline, even if it's not the way that you want it to end. They still get a win. It's kind of one of those let's protect everybody kind of endings. But you could easily say, no, I, I, I won. I still had you pinned for like two more seconds after, you know, they had the interference. So you still felt like there was a good, like, emotional uh, payoff there for you? Yeah. At the end, you know, uh, both Sting and Dusty are, you know, look like they're genuinely celebrating, even though it's not the ending they would, would normally want. Mm -hmm. This was really fun. And had some of the best crowd reactions of the night uh for sure this side of the rick steiner match yeah i mean it's it's sting and dusty there's no way the crowd isn't going to be screaming their heads off at that one mm -hmm. i really liked it the road warriors had really impressive power as always dusty still gets great crowd reactions and i noticed he was really properly used in this match i thought he plays face in peril so you get to have dusty the older wrestler making the 
Road Warriors look really good and making Sting look really good because Sting gets to come in and show off his moves and save him and everything. So it's a really good use for Dusty, I think, in this match. It's like this match and last year's Luger match, I think Dusty was pretty effectively used to kind of like build someone up. Sting gets to show off his amazing agility, strength, and crazy jumping ability. It is not really any surprise when I uh, when I found out that Sting played basketball in high school. <laughs> yeah, it's a gimme. He is by far the star of this match. Even with Dusty and the Road Warriors in there who are all great performers, Sting stands out as an incredibly gifted performer. The match itself doesn't push much beyond the usual tag formula, though I think that only stands out so much maybe because... You know, this is the fourth tag match on this show. Mm -hmm. But it's still an exciting and really well-worked match, and it gets great mileage out of some of wrestling's biggest personalities. Like we said, the ending feels like a pretty big letdown, but it's a really fun little match. There's nothing exceptional story-wise, but there's really, really great character work. L.O.D., violence for violence's sake. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, so remember that whole uh, Dusty with the spike thing? Yeah, 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 that great emotional angle that set up this match, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he was told not to do that, oh. and then he did it anyways. So they waited till after Starcade and fired him. <sighs> that is a big loss. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's like, as far as personality and centrality to the company goes, I think that's the biggest loss we've had. Yeah over these shows. Yeah, the biggest loss you could have at this point is Dusty or Flair leaving. Yeah, yeah. And it, wow, that's that's enormous. I mean, I guess it's kind of weird that they, they wait this long. It's weird that if they have such a problem with the spike angle, I get that they maybe couldn't do anything about it the night it originally aired, but it's in the opening video package. Yeah. If you have that big of a problem with it, wouldn't you tell them don't use that again? Just show the earlier strikes or something? And then I do get why you don't like can him immediately because you kind of need him for the storyline and everything. But I do wonder if he knew going into this that he was done or if. I don't know on that one. Yeah. It's literally literally a month from the angle happens on the 26th and this show is December 26th. Yeah. They have a month to decide what to do. They decide to keep him around. Let the show go as go on as it is, and then do what they want to do. Yeah. Now, is it like a liability where they think they're going to get fined because of the no no blood? or It's a network choice. Um, they weren't super firm about that before, because obviously they were on his network. But basically it was, well, you know, you do your own thing, your own network, and we'll give you notes. But now they're literally owned by the people that produce the show. Yeah. So they obviously have a lot more power over the show and people involved. And I would imagine it's it's probably less that Dusty did this particular angle and more that he did this particular angle after being told specifically not to do something like that. Yeah. You know, so it's the the defiance of orders rather than, you know, the necessarily the nature of what happened, but Well, it is unfortunate, but I do think that it it liability might even be part of it because they would still if they still use the video spot it's not because you know like it's already done they just don't try to profit from it or whatever but you know here's an asset that you know they would love to build up but if he's just going to have a career-ending injury 
next month or or next time they tell them not to do something, you know, that's a big loss for them. Yeah, yeah, true. Definitely. On the bright side, I know Dusty does return eventually, but I believe this is the end of his like full active in-ring career in WCW. Correct. On the first actual WCW show. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> oh. Um, as far as the rest of it, Sting goes on to challenge for the world title following this and has a lot of interesting matches involving Flair and other people for that. As for the tag team titles, like with the TV title, they're heavily contested. They changed hand quite a few times during 1989, uh, which builds up towards the next show we're going to do, which the champions going to that show, not that they're on the line, mind you, are, <laughs> are Rick and Scott Steiner, the Steiner Ooh. brothers. That'll be cool. Tony and Magnum discuss the match, and Magnum says that Sting and Dusty showed that the Road Warriors are not invincible. They could be beaten. They build up that, while a disqualification saved the Road Warriors there, Flair can't count on that in the match coming up, because for the upcoming Flair versus Luger match, Flair will lose the title if he gets disqualified. Magnum says that he thinks that Luger is up for the challenge, but Tony says in baseball they have a Mr. October, and in the NWA, they have a Mr. Starcade, Ric Flair. So our final match is Lex Luger versus Ric Flair with J.J. Dillon for Flair's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. So as mentioned in the follow-up on last show, by the beginning of the year, Luger turns face, um, quits the horseman. He has the whole thing with Barry Windham, who turn, turns on him. That sort of leads into him moving from challenging for the lower card titles and the tag titles to going right after the top, going after Flair. They have some matches throughout the year. Basically, Ric Flair always finds a way to escape, including a DQ situation, thus setting up the no DQ for this match so he can't escape with the title with the DQ. I think it's interesting that they didn't go for just a solid no DQ match. There are DQs, but Flair loses the title if he gets DQ'd. I think that's actually kind of a a nice move on Luger's part if it's what he was gunning for because, you know, if it's no DQ match, then Flair can just say, hey, Horseman, come on down, you know? Yeah, exactly. Where if it's a DQ match, he still has to be really, really careful in this one. Yeah. It's sort of his style. <laughs> yeah. Luger comes out to some interesting music. Mm. It sounds kind of like a grungy, post-apocalyptic 80s movie theme is all I could kind of gather for it. It does make me kind of sad that Luger has lost the nice robe that he had because he's turned face. Flair, of course, still has his uh, robes, and this time it's green and gold. Mm -hmm. We get a pro-Flair sign in the crowd that uh, decries Lex Loser, but another sign says that Lex Luger is going to kick some booty in public, if you will. That's a Dusty line. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe Dusty said that in support of Luger at some point. I don't know. It was just kind of weird to see a Dustyism on a Luger sign. It's like the colliding of universes. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of that guy with that sign, he is all over that show, too. Yeah. He's yeah. in the front he row. Shows up all the time. And it's kind of weird. The part that I think they have issue with the filming is that it seems like there's a really small gap between the outside where the barricade is and the ring. Yeah. Like, when they're going behind Bob Cottle and Jim Ross, there's a very small gap because they're like, gotta tuck your way through it where well it's because we've decided to stick the announce table right up against the ring right right what it comes down to is that guy holding a sign up is like 
four feet from the ring apron practically. So anytime the camera moves in towards Cottle and JR, he's like, oh, me, me, and they point a sign at it. JR notes that Luthaz is in attendance. I wonder how he felt about seeing his move fail in the first match. <laughs> uh, JR says that many say that Luthaz is the greatest champion ever. JR is leaning towards Blair. Wait, not Ron Garvin? <laughs> no, not Ron Garvin. Okay, go on. Sadly. He also notes that Flair was Rookie of the Year in 1975, and in 1986, the Rookie of the Year was Lex Luger. That's kind of a good hard sell of Luger's potential, I thought. Luger gets a very good reaction, if it's not quite as good as Stinger Dusty. Some people cheer Flair, but everybody boos Dylan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the biggest cheers come from the announcement of the special DQ title loss rule. JR notes that Luger is down 13 pounds because Flair's cardio is among the best, and he and Caudle discuss Luger wanting to pick up some speed and endurance to stay with Flair for the duration. Flair gives a woo to Luger starting out, and celebrates countering a whip by stopping himself with the ropes, even going so far as to high-five Dylan and give Luger a smug grin. Luger wipes the smile off his face with a clothesline out of the ring. <laughs> we get a shot of Luthez in the crowd as Flair comes back in at Looked like he was having some fun. Flair tries to out-wrestle Luger, but Luger holds his own and stays calm. Flair gets enraged and charges. Luger hits a power slam and a military press to take solid advantage, and uses a series of holds to wear Flair down some more, while shrugging off Flair's strikes and powering out of his holds. Luger applies a hammerlock with a lot more energy than you normally see, really wrenching on the arm, which looked cool. It takes an eye poke to get Luger reeling, but Flair just can't get him worn down and can't get away from him. JR tries to make a point about how having Luthez in the crowd really might be a good luck charm for Flair, because he won at the first Starcade with Gene Kaniski, another wrestling legend present. It seems tenuous at best. That's a, that's a bit of a stretch, yeah. Yeah. Luger hits a huge stalling suplex, but misses an elbow drop and Flair finally gets some sustained offense by hurling Luger out through the ropes and landing strikes on him outside, assisted by the barricades. Luger starts to recover and no-sells a chop, jiggling his pecs. Is that his version of the Hulk up? <laughs> Kinda like mm -hmm. it. Luger grabs the sleeper, but Flair counters with a belly-to-back suplex that leaves both laying. Flair going up top goes even worse than usual, as Luger superplexes him down. <laughs> Luger gets the figure four. Ref Tommy Young kicks Flair's hands off the ropes the first couple times he goes to them to break, but accepts it the third time. It didn't look like Flair or Dylan cheated there, so I wasn't really sure why he was kicking the hands away. He just doesn't like Ric Flair, that's all it is. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it's just, he instinctively thinks, Ric Flair, figure four spot, must kick ropes, <laughs> you know? Luger goes after Flair, but accidentally elbows Young, and Flair throws Luger over the top rope. Luger lands on his feet and climbs up top to dive on Flair for two. Luger takes it to Flair and gets enormous cheers and calls for the torture rack, but Dylan distracts Luger so Flair can roll out. With Young distracted, Flair grabs a chair and nails Luger in the knee, then goes to work on the leg, earning a Luger cell that actually gets bleeped. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He's for the adult audiences there. Yeah. <laughs> Flair gets the figure four. The crowd chants for Luger, and Luger fights the hold, so Flair slaps him. Uh oh. That turns out to be a mistake as Luger screams in rage and powers the hold over so Flair has to break. Luger keeps after Flair, but his power moves take a lot out of him now, and he has to use the ropes to stand back up with his leg injured. 
Flair tries a jumping forearm, but Luger just stands there and Flair bounces off in an awesome spot. After a big power slam, Luger goes for the torture rack, but his leg gives out, and Flair lands on top and puts his feet on the ropes for the three count and the win. Luger tries to tell Young that Flair was using the ropes, but Young says he didn't see it, and awards the match to Flair. Dylan helps an exhausted and battered Flair out of the ring. I really liked it. The best comparison I have for this match is the match from 86, where it's Nikita Koloff and Ric Flair. Yeah. Where it's the young power guy against Ric Flair, the cheating heel. I obviously really like that match, but I feel I almost feel like this is maybe the better version, even better version of that, mm-hmm. because that one had the mix of mostly just power and striking against Flair, whereas they have more moves here and a little more story. Is it even ebb and flow to it? A slightly more balanced, more nuanced version of that match, I would think. Yeah. Obviously, Luger is fun to listen to because he sells everything <laughs> for the back row. There's that joke they made earlier about the sailors and ships at sea heard that one clothesline. <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure they are kept up at night by Luger constantly shouting as they try <laughs> to sleep. <laughs> Though I did notice there's one section in the middle of the match where he's so worn down by what Flair's doing that he actually stops Luger selling. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like, it's less, that's his super selling, is I'm not going to make any noise. Hmm. Well, you know, what's the thing? So there's that famous glitch from Civilization where they made Gandhi so peaceful that it, tur- it looped back around, right, yeah. and he's super violent. It's the same thing. He's in so much pain that he it looped all the way back around, and he's silent. <laughs> And yes, I just compared Gandhi and Civilization to Lex Luger. <laughs> and I'm proud of myself. But no, I really liked this story. Um, my only issue really is that on Luger's side, there's no build to figure four. He's yeah. beating him up. He's beating him up. It's really good. And then somebody's like, hmm, superplex. That targets it back. So I'll go up to figure four. Do you think maybe that's an intentional storyline thing? That it's showing Luger doesn't have the technical expertise of Rick? Or do you think it's just an oversight? I don't know. I mean, I could see that if, you know, going back to the Cola flare match, where there was clearly that, not that Cola couldn't wrestle, because obviously he could and, and did, but that was definitely more about him just using raw power and striking. I could see if it was, that was in that match, that would make perfect sense as that answer. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's doing arm holds, he's doing suplexes, doing body slams. So I don't quite see that. I think yeah. it's just. We have this middle point, and we have to have the face use figure four and Ric Flair. It just kind of didn't connect. It's not a bad, really bad thing. It's just it stands out because everything else is so good, and suddenly like, oh, figure four time now. Yeah. A little build-up to that would have been nice. Okay. Flair side, obviously, Flair, once he can cheat and use the chair, he's obviously going right after figure four. And I like that it plays into the finish... It does, it's one of those things where it does make Luger look a little dumb. He could just not go for a torture rack. He's shown he can throw Ric Flair around and withstand his chops. But instead he goes, no, I'm going to do a move where I have to lift him up on my bad knee. And then the move also involves me shaking up and down yeah. to cause torque. And, oh, no, that hurts my knee. Like, if they'd done a little bit more of, uh, I, just, I just can't keep him down. I have to go for my big move. Mm-hmm. Where it yeah. doesn't it doesn't quite feel like they get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where when they have repeated matches and more experience together, a little thing like that get worked out. Obviously, there's a screwy finish aspect to it, but very similar to what you were saying with the 
Wyndham using the advantage and figuring out when to knock Bam Bam down and get in there. It really goes down to the smarter heel yeah. using the nefarious thing. So it doesn't bother me nearly as much as those previous two matches of the finish did. Because even though it's a cheating finish, it is still a clean-ish finish. Yeah. As clean as a heel Ric Flair finish and he wins, uh, the pinfall finish is going to be, using all those caveats there. This is probably one of my one of the matches I actually like Rick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that I don't like Ric Flair. I'm just saying. This one, I, I think he did a really good job building up Lex. Mm-hmm. There are some points where, like, yeah, I found it funny when they were talking about how Lex had lost weight to gain speed. And I, I don't really think of, of Ric Flair being super fast uh, out of all the other wrestlers. I think he's cunning or, you know, he has some strategy there. But no, he, he did a good job, you know, really selling a, a bunch of those whips where he heads towards the turnbuckle and flips himself around and, and then yeah. flops down, <laughs> which is always a little comical to me. But... Then you have Luger selling on top of that, so <laughs> uh, it's all good. I didn't know if they'd hold hands and then they in the middle and like they both looked like they were in pain. Um, <laughs> it felt weird to see Luger use like a wrist lock or, or uh, some sort of you know arm submission. At least with his physique, it seems like he would be the just do nothing but slams and jumps and and everything. So I thought that was a little. Or, or or John, he could have done a bear hug. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> could have. Okay, well, like the sleeper, it's just like a modified bear hug. You know, it's a face, <laughs> it's a face hug. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I think of when I hear the word face hug, but yes. Well, you know, like Aliens is out, you know, and it just seemed like Luger was doing moves that didn't really... I mean, I haven't seen him wrestle other than, you know, the last arcade... But it just seems like I don't, I don't remember him doing a figure four or a, a wrist lock. I don't know if it's just you felt like he, it didn't really fit his style. Maybe not. Again, I haven't seen enough of his wrestling to really fully say that. But it, it seemed like you know he had chosen the leg lock to show Rick he could do it too. Yeah, beat him with his own moves, kind of thing. I did like the uh, pectoral comeback that he did, where he's like flaunts and taunts his, his abilities, and then goes all. Would you say Hogan esque or, or, or? Yeah, it's it's like the Hulk up, but in his case, it's peck jiggles, yeah. which <laughs> just that's it's something Luger does frequently, and he's inordinately proud of that talent, mm-hmm. which I would be if I had pecs. <laughs> <laughs> when they're doing the leg lock in, in uh, he does that slow crunch up, and then he slaps him in the face, and then he hulks out again. I thought that was that was done well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Good camera work, and the crowd seemed to love it at that time. I, I don't get the ref. I only need 10% of my field of vision to see that they're penned. <laughs> and I need to look towards the camera constantly. <laughs> iron iron will and focus. I know they did that to kind of save face for Lex. You know, where like, oh, well, he, you know, he took advantage of me uh, other than messing with my knee and everything but i kind of wish they just gave it to to rick without having to do the the last bit of dirtiness i just want to be happy that the person won overcome adversity rather than inflict it it's probably just muscle memory at this point he knew the ropes yeah he just started climbing them <laughs> he might not even be supposed to do it it's just like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but luger did a good job and uh i guess rick had to win 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. It's actually about 35 minutes long, I think. I believe so. But it doesn't feel like it. No. There is some repetition in the match. Luger repeatedly does uh, corner punch spots, and he hits several power slams over the course of it, for instance. But it never really slows down or feels dull. Luger has a lot of personality in this match, and he interacts really well with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And Flair plays off him really, really well and really shows the fear of Luger's ability to just keep coming through all his strikes. Luger doesn't actually feel outright superhuman. No. Flair's able to wear him down a few times in the match, so it feels like we have a pretty nice back-and-forth flow after Luger's initial rush of offense. Luger does a pretty nice job selling the leg, and there's a nice sort of theme difference in his moves. Early in the match, he easily uses his power and even uses a big stalling suplex, while later in the match, especially after the chair hit to the knee, he uses shorter throws and his knee gives out after the only longer one, a military press. True. It's a nice way of building to the ending, I thought. I liked the foot-on-the-ropes pin for this one because I, I thought it like it really, really builds up Luger. Even with the injury and Luger's mistake in going for the torture rack, it nicely feels that Flair just barely sneaks out a win over him. So it gets you looking forward to, like, okay, what could Luger accomplish with a right. little more seasoning, you know? And he did a collapse at the end, so he needed to call upon whatever he could. Yeah. Um, like with last year's Luger versus Dusty, it feels like this match does a ton to build up Lex Luger, and he doesn't lose his momentum in losing here. No. Uh, I came off feeling like Luger could definitely hang with the world champion. I totally bought him at that level. So really a lot of credit to both guys here for some great character work and for maintaining a really fast pace over quite a long match. Excellently done. I do have to wonder, how many times does he have to do the chop and it has no effect that he right. learns? Because it happened with the fight Sting, as well as Luger, other people, probably Hogan as well. I'm, yeah. Hogan matches up. I'm guessing same thing happens. He keeps trying them. Ten minutes later, he'll try them again and go, wait, it didn't work? <laughs> he even hurts his hand on one of them this time. Uh, yes. I assume it's because Lex uh, countered the chop with a peck jiggle. Right. <laughs> and maybe pinned his hand there. Yeah. <laughs> In the coming months, Ric Flair is attacked by a masked Ricky Steamboat, who makes his return to WCW. A happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) For us, anyway. Ricky Steamboat's back. Yeah. They would go on to have what many wrestling purists call the greatest match of all time. The problem is that that's not a Starcade next year, so we're not covering (laughs) it yet. Yeah. I had to talk about the Four Horsemen because they have an interesting 89. So I have to go back just a little bit for this. So, going into 88, when the year starts, the four horsemen, you've got Ric Flair, managed by Day Day Dillon, you've got Lex Luger, who doesn't stay that long, obviously, placed by Barry Winham, so it's kind of a fairly even trade, and you've got Arnatoli. Yeah. Come September, Arnatoli leaves the WWF, which is why they dropped the titles to the Midnight Express, who quickly dropped them to the Road Warriors. And then you have, I talked about before, like Barry Windham leaving. Following that bit where Steamboat, Max Steamboat attacked Ric Flair, he gets really mad and fires J.J. Dillon in Storyline. Hmm. When, in fact, J.J. Dillon goes to work for WF and back off his job. Okay. So they now need a replacement for the sort of manager, overseer character. Their solution is to take Hiro Matsuda, 
and make him the new manager, overseer, character for the Four Horsemen. <laughs> Other people join. I'll talk about that in the next show because it's kind of interesting. But the worst thing that happened, unfortunately, through the middle of the year is with all these people gone, with Hiram suited now overseeing them, there's a brief period where there is no Four Horsemen. In its place, there is the Yamazaki Corporation. Okay. That's what it become when it's meant by here at Matsuda. Okay. Michael P.S. Hayes joins. They tease other people joining. But yeah, this is kind of forgotten dark period where they're literally not even four horsemen. <laughs> Thankfully, they sort of rebound towards the end of the year. But yeah, just I was surprised to learn that the period where they rechristened the forest the Yamazaki Corporation. That's not quite as intimidating a name, is it? No, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if it was Kawasaki, they could at least all have motorcycles. Kawasaki would have been good. My first thought reading it was was that maybe it's related to Die Hard, but it's actually not the different Japanese name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the building in Die Hard is, yeah. Following what's... I'm sure you'll mention is billed as Luger's final title match, which obviously is not the case. He would go on to challenge for the U.S. title okay. throughout this 89. We go back to the announcers, and Tony, Jr., and Caudill all agree that Luger really proved himself despite the loss. Caudill says that he will definitely be world champ one day. Jr. and Caudill have to talk over an announcement about the upcoming Bunkhouse Stampede match, <laughs> which we won't get. It is a dark match for this show. Following that, we go backstage with Magnum for an interview with Ric Flair. I'm standing here with the man, Ric Flair, who just retained the world's heavyweight title. Despite all odds, despite what all the skeptics said, maybe Ric Flair was pushed to the ultimate limit, but he is still the world's heavyweight champion. Well, I've come to live by one motto, and that is survival. This is the greatest, toughest sport in the world. This is the National Wrestling Alliance, the Big Daddy. There's nothing like it. And tonight, for three hours, people around the world saw the best competition in a man's sport, the National Wrestling Alliance. And Ric Flair, once again, call it luck, call it the grace of God, throw the scab off the end of my chin, whatever you want to call it. I'm standing here. I never claimed to play this game by the rules. I played Ric Flair's way. And that's doing at all costs. And here I am. And I'll tell you and the Crockett's and Ted Turner and anybody else that doesn't like it. To get this, you gotta beat this. Bottom line. So Ladies Luger, and gentlemen, it is now time for the Bunkhouse Stampede. This message goes especially to you and those millions of adoring fans that look at you, that look at you as being their idol figure, their role model, whatever they live and breathe every day. That's what you represent, Luger. But the bottom line is, right now, you will never wrestle Ric Flair again for the world's heavyweight wrestling championship. It's gonna cost James Dillon a lot of money, but when you're the world champion, money's no problem. Lawyers, Ted Turner, Crockett, it makes no difference. Luger, you had your last shot tonight. That was it, pal. How do you like that, huh? You like being told by me 
You're done. That's it. One shot. You, my friend, are history in the eyes of the champ. Woo! <laughs> You're history, Luger. Ric Flair is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's in full lunatic ranting mode here, and oh, it yeah. is great. In past years, he's come off as, you know, still respectful or still a fighting champion, even if he's towing the line. Not here. No. Here he is full-on ranting villain that just wants to take the win and deny the hero another shot. It really makes you want to see Luger somehow get another shot at him anyway and wipe that smug grin off his face, maybe with another monster clothesline outside the ring. (laughs) The... (laughs) The bunkhouse stampede announcement is unfortunately timed. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunate. <laughs> I wonder, like, was it just that loud where they could actually hear it backstage, or did they forget to turn off the ring announcer sound feed again? No, I think the echo, the echo, they could have just had one of the doors open or something. Yeah. Or it could have been playing over the PA in like the hallway outside of the where the room is or something. It's just know. like this continues to happen this night. It's, uh, oh well. It's a great promo anyway. It's fun to watch, and it made me want to see Flair beaten. I would like for you to convince me that there is no drug use <laughs> involved in, the, in that rant. I thought it was a good promo from him. Like, he just kept on escalating. I don't know if it was just because he wanted to talk over the other announcements. <laughs> yeah, true. Or, uh, you know, like he had something to say, but... He talks about, like, it's going to take a lot of money and you have to go through me, but guess what? You're not going to get a chance. <laughs> yeah, he kind of, he starts out just, like, claiming victory. Then he goes to Luger, I hate you and all of your fans. And then he goes to, I'm also never giving you ever another title shot against me and no matter how much money it takes me. How, ha, ha, how do you like that? And you're just like, <laughs> he's just being a jerk now. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Because we, we've had the true Ric Flair as a performer for a few shows now, but on those shows, we haven't gotten an actual Ric Flair promo mm-hmm. for for, oh, for yeah, the past yeah. couple of years. So this is, I think, like our first actual look at the evil lunatic Ric Flair, just arrogant heel promo style. Yeah. And it's it's terrific. You can Absolutely. see why he has such a long career in wrestling. He's one of the best talkers in the business by far. It's absolutely amazing to to see. I was a little annoyed when I first learned that there's this crazy bunkhouse stampede match and we don't get it. But then I'm reading Wikipedia about it, seeing who's in it. I'm not as sad about it. It's won by Junkyard Dog, the only guy to, to win a bunkhouse match that's not Dusty Rhodes. Because he won every one of them that actually counted. But among the competitors, you have Abdul the Butcher, sadly cut from the show. I know Bob is disappointed. The uh, team of Commando Ray and Commando Boon, one of whom was one half of the Zambui Express. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Some people I do like. Eddie Gilbert. Actually, this would have been our first Dustin Rhodes appearance. Oh, really? He's wow. in the, Yeah, he's in the bunkhouse at P. He just doesn't win it. Interesting. All of the Midnight Express people are in it. Also, the Panastics are in it. We get Larry Zabisco, which is kind of Ooh, weird. Cool. And Al Perez, who the one point was going to be a huge star, and then... It never really followed up on it. <laughs> There's a little bit we'll get in a couple of shows, but it's not quite the same. 
But yeah, I was like, oh, it's a match I'm going to see. I'm like, eh, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. good. A lot of people working two matches that night going into the bunkhouse stampede. Yeah. Because got all the midnights, you got Junkyard Dog, you know, that's... I'll keep looking. If we find it, we can watch it and do a mini review or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> we go back to the announcers to wrap up the show. Tony reflects on the NWA developing from individual territories to a national power. He wonders where the NWA goes from here, riding on the shoulders of one of the greatest champions, Ric Flair. As they go into 1989, Tony sees good things coming for the NWA. J.R. and Caudill try to discuss what's coming up next, battling sound errors, and Caudill finally gets out that the NWA is like a shooting star. It's going to take off. I don't think that's how shooting stars work. No. <laughs> I think they more descend. <laughs> they also got to wonder, so they're super braggadocious at the end of this show, roughly a month removed from having to be bought out to stay in business. Yeah, true. So is that them just really being braggart about it, or is it like a weird defense mechanism? Yeah, we're great forever. Definitely nothing can go wrong. I could see it's that, or it might, I mean, I, honestly, I could characterize it as relief. That they're yeah. like, you know, we were we saw the dark times and we might be coming out of them now. I don't get that latter part of it yeah. from the promo or from the way they say it. It's just like, we're the best. Oh, we've been the best. Best forever. <laughs> they recap the night and promote the next show. And we close with a video package of the show's matches. Starcade 88 has drawn to a close. What are your overall thoughts? It's a pretty strong show. It's more memorable for me than 87 was. 87 was good, but it all kind of blends together. Um, I Even now, like a month removed, I don't have tons of memories specifically. I'm sure I could be prompting, oh yeah, that thing, but yeah. they don't come to me right away, whereas I feel like a lot of this stuff still going to stick with me. All the matches are pretty solid. There's only one weak point for me. That's early enough in the show that they can sort of move past it. Obviously, there's a lot of dusty booking that I have issues with. Either non-finishes, like this DQ, or sort of shady finishes, like the countout, or convoluted finishes, like the with the TV title. They don't ruin the show, and the show is thankfully staying at the seven-match length and staying shorter than other shows were, like 86. Yeah. It's definitely a solid show. There's enough there. Even if you don't like the finishes, you can enjoy everything for me, I would say. I enjoyed watching this one. With the Road Warriors and uh, Dusty Rhodes and Sting match in particular. I know you're going to ask us that later, but... <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. No, good. The first two matches were quick. You know, we didn't really have the normal... The, the, everything went off with a bang. I thought that promo footage was actually <laughs> turned into a match suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, got to meet some new people. A lot of great backstory now that you know we've done this review. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, the matches all have a little bit more meaning to me now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite match with Ric Flair. Good. Yeah. Nice. He's on an upswing for you. That's that's good if it's going upward in trajectory. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of those non-shooting stars. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's the tale of two shows. The wrestling on this show, the performances, the announcing, all that is really good. The production, however, has backslid mm-hmm. almost all the way to where we were at Starcade 83. <laughs> I really wasn't expecting that at all. This is now being run by an actual TV company. 
So I thought that things like camera work, sound equipment, and all like that would be on the upswing. But they were all serious, serious downgrades from last year. The sound was inconsistent. They seemed to struggle to keep the mics working properly. Mics cut out in interviews and announcing segments. The wrong sound feeds played at times. Even when everything seemed to be working, something just seemed wrong with the sound levels this year. I know I don't have that much room to talk as my own audio editing isn't that great, but the way things seemed to jump or dive in volume was just distracting, and the announcers even got drowned out by the entrance music. The camera work was even worse than prior years for the most part, and without <laughs> the excuse of the scaffold or cages this time. Yeah. There's important moments and matches that are frequently just not quite in frame, the wrong angles are chosen... One particular camera seemed constantly tilted off kilter a little bit. <laughs> it did, it did, yeah. Production was just shoddy, apart from the opening video package, which was great. But the show itself was really, really good. Uh, mm. We had seven matches. Six of them were great fun. And the one remaining one was, you know, it was acceptable enough to yeah. me. Everyone seemed motivated, and they put on excellent performances. We got some wonderful, genuine moments like Steiner's title win, alongside some excellent excellent character work like Lunatic promo Ric Flair and the Cornette versus Dangerously scuffles. The matches had emotion and felt really, really important. The announced teams definitely helped there. JR and Caudle emphasized the history of the wrestlers involved and built up their personal stories, and Tony and Magnum brought up the chain of title matches and helped hammer home each match story and how the night was progressing. I thought the two announced teams would feel strange, but it actually worked really well for me. The transitions felt natural, and the two teams played well off of each other. I particularly liked Caudle bringing up the predictions that Tony and Magnum made to put his own spin on them. Caudle and JR had great chemistry as a commentary team, and similar to Tony and JR last year, they had some good discussions that really brought out the story of the matches. There was... I felt like a kind of excitement in the air on this one in general. Uh, the crowd was happy, and aside from a few rebellious voices, they really cheered on the faces. The wrestlers and hosts, though, seemed excited here too. I guess it's not that hard to understand. Uh, JCP was struggling this past year. Yes. But now things are different, and people can keep doing what they love. I guess maybe that's it. There's a feeling of possibility here, I think. People being excited for the future. For now, at least, it feels like a hopeful company. The show's order is pretty strange. Yes. We have three tag matches in a row. Then two singles matches, then a tag match, then a singles match. The first two tag matches were really great, mine, but it still felt like maybe we could have done with breaking those up with some of the singles stuff. Or two in a row, maybe, but three? That's a little much. And honestly, four tag matches is just maybe too many for one show. No matter how hard they worked, it was hard not to feel a little bit too samey by the end. On the previous show, none of them had an extra gimmick like having a cage. Yeah, yeah, it's all just straight tag. Yeah. Do you think it was a timing thing where like we want to get everyone in, but we have so much time for matches and we'd rather... Yeah, maybe, or maybe, I mean, it's just like, I think it just is the angles that they ended up working this year just all naturally lent themselves to tag matches, but there's really a lot of them. Production difficulties and weird show order aside, this was a really, really fun watch and is among my favorite Starcades thus far. There's some backsliding here with the production and all, but by and large, something went really right this year. And while I'll talk your ears off about the sound and camera issues and how odd it feels that we've gone back to very basic entrances again, 
This was a great show. Time for match of the night and MVP. Al, you want to go? Sure. So I debated a lot of our matches the night. I really like the Rick Steiner Microtunda match. As I said, my issue with how they sort of got to the finish is the only thing that keeps it from being match tonight for me. Likewise, I really liked the opening match in the Fantastics. They're just while there was some nice nuance to it, it wasn't quite enough to take it above like a really really good tag match to being extra special, like. Mm-hmm. With the Rock and Roll Express versus the Anderson, for example. Yeah. It may be to me hard to top that. And I hope someone does. So it comes down to me for the highest quality one with the closest thing to also having clean finish. So that's why I pick Flair Luger. Okay. I like that story and I like how it builds. Well, I still have issues with it's not perfect. I like the overall feel of it. And like I said during the recap, for me, it's a better version stronger, more subtle, nuanced version of the Koloff match from 86. Yeah, it's a terrific match. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As far as MVP, that was really tricky for me, too. The way I looked at it was there was the two matches I talked about. I couldn't put match of the night to, and then the one I actually didn't mention yet, which in this part, which is the whole thing with Sting and Dusty mm-hmm. and the Road Warriors. I liked all of them in it. Just, again, finishing all that. Yeah, yada. So... I really came down to me between picking Sting or Rick Steiner as my MVP because for me, both of them really shined in the role they had and they did their part very well. So yeah, for me, it came down to Sting or Rick Steiner. God, I, I'm Even as I'm saying that, I'm still not 100% <laughs> set on it. I feel like I gave it to Sting because I think Sting's part in the match is the least blemished because he did a really good job. It's just they did that finish. Uh, John? Uh, match of the night has to go to the Road Warriors versus Dusty Rhodes and Sting. Okay. Like I said, I I want everyone in there to win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. Like, that's like the ideal match, taking the favorites out of other Starcades and just putting them against each other. Yeah. I can see that. But that said, my MVP for the night does not come from that match at all. Oh. Ooh. And uh, I think you will be quite surprised by who I choose. And I'm going to go with Rick Steiner. All right. Um, because uh, I enjoyed this character. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that they did all the heel stuff of, you know, uh, the storyline where they, you know, he shouldn't have won. And, and, you know, and he came back and the crowd was loving it. Like at that point, you know, there were some other big points of the night where they were just ecstatic. But I think that the biggest one at that point was for Rick and he's doing laps and, and he was clearly there. And even the um, promo afterwards was nice. Even though the sound cut out, I think that <laughs> I liked the, the joking. It was jovial overall and I enjoyed his character. So, and, yeah. and his abilities, you know, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I choose Rick. Honestly, re-listening to that promo made me really unsure going to actually ask me. I had written down Sting or Rick on my notes, but I was 80% towards Sting. But hearing again, I'm like, oh, maybe not. That's Richard Backing. Yeah, it's just such a fun character-driven yeah. promo that, that just works really well. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be interesting. I think this will be the very first show that we've not had at least two of us agreeing on one of our picks. All right. So, for me, the match of the night is Rick Steiner versus Mike Rotunda. All right. I complained a bit about some over-reliance on headlocks for transitions in this one, but you know what? It doesn't matter. 
every single other thing about this match is amazing. Every move is crisp and perfect. There's a ton of variety, a great mix of amateur wrestling and big power moves. Some of the best clotheslines I have ever seen from both guys. Top it all off with a really great storyline and a lovable face in Rick Steiner. And you get some amazing crown interaction. What really did it for me, though, was just that sight of an elated Steiner racing around the ring post-match, overjoyed and pointing in disbelief and happiness at Rotunda, and grabbing the title and running full tilt with it overhead, all while the crowd cheers wildly. I actually teared up a little watching that. It was a beautiful moment. It's a great moment, absolutely. Yeah. For MVP, there's a ton of good choices for MVP tonight, um, some of which you've already mentioned. Uh, you know, Rick Steiner, of course, deserves a mention for that moment and the rest of that match and his promo. Mike Rotunda provided a really great foil. Flair, sure. of course, is brilliant. Obviously. Sting deserves particular mm-hmm. praise for his energy and unmatched crowd reaction tonight and that crazy dive outside in particular. Oh, yeah. But I'm giving it to Lex Luger. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh. Luger's here in a match against Ric Flair. He actually doesn't have to work that hard to make that work. True. Flair is so good by this point that he could, as the saying goes, carry a broomstick to a good match. But Luger pushed himself really hard, and he put on the best show he possibly could, keeping up with Flair in a fast-paced and very lengthy match. The announcers talked about him improving his cardio, and I don't think that was all story. Luger clearly came prepared for a long performance, and he put on a great show. All the little details just seemed to come together for him perfectly. So, Lex Luger is my MVP for tonight. Fair enough. I'm glad. I'm glad you chose Lex. That was that was my next uh, <laughs> choice. I was wondering. I was wondering if that would uh, if that was gonna get your way. I certainly considered him. Yeah, definitely didn't draw him out. Yeah. I also want to mention the surprise of the night here. Tommy Rogers surprised me tonight. He really made the Fantastics versus the Varsity Club match superb. Uh, had a whole bunch of cool spots that I wasn't expecting to see at all. It was a great match, but he just stood out in it and really constantly seemed to have some new cool thing to do or a perfectly timed spot that really impressed me. So I just wanted to to note him in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps up our review of Starcade 88, True Grit. I hope you've enjoyed Yeah. True grit to tit. <laughs> there you go. To true grit. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to us here tonight. Next time, we'll be back to review Starcade 89 Future Shock. If you've enjoyed listening to us here tonight, you can find further podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let's Go to the Ring. That's uh, with the number two in place of the word two. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Let's Go to the Ring. If you've enjoyed the show, please do help us spread the word. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures tonight. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins signing off. Good night, everybody. And happy wrestling. Get some rest. (laughs) 